Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everyone. RFM, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you for not having to say, um, I think you need to unmute yourself so early in the program. Yeah, Were you muted that. before? Uh, I, I was muted when we first do the intro. Well, you have no idea how much delight it gives me to be the one to say that you need to unmute yourself. I, yeah, I don't, yeah, I wasn't muted when I needed to be unmuted. I say it anyway, just to get All in. Right. So it's Mormonism Live, it's Wednesday evening. It yeah. is August 17th, 2022. Mr. Bill Real, it is your show tonight. Yeah, but you've got a guest to start us off with. I do, because there's this huge show that's opening up this coming weekend in Syracuse, Utah, which also happens to be the city north of Bountiful that my uh, my daughter lives in. There's a big show. It's called The Good Shepherds. We have managed to get uh, a few minutes from the star director all-around financier, the guy who's got everything writing on this, whose name is David Nolan. And he's there at the theater coming out in the midst of rehearsals, which are frantic at this point, to tell us what the scoop is and why it is we should be buying tickets to go see this production. Let's bring him on, my friend. <clears throat> Dave, how are you? I'm doing good. Can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you great, my friend. All Where right. are you? I am standing outside the theater. It's like 98 degrees right now. Well, you look cool no matter how hot the temperature. Thank you. Got the stage makeup on, ready to go for our dress rehearsal. Well, fantastic. We don't want to keep you from that too long, but just long enough to find out what's going on. First off, what is the theater you're standing in front of? <clears throat> this is the Syracuse Amphitheater. So it's pretty cool. It's an outdoor venue with amazing lights and sound and holds about a thousand people. And it, it's just perfect for what we're doing. Great. And the name of the show is The Good Shepherds? Yep. When does it start? When's opening night? Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night on Ooh. Thursday, August 18th? Yep. What time? Uh, 7.30. How long is the run? We're doing three shows for now. And uh, hopefully we can add some more shows based on ticket demand. So right now it's just 18th, 19th, and 20th of August, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 7.30. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. Where can people go to get tickets? So the website is the Good Shepherds with an S, thegoodshepherds.net, and that'll give you all the info that you need. Can you give us a three-minute, 100-word synopsis of this show? <laughs> sure. So um, the main character is an undercover New York Times reporter who is an advocate for the poor and the homeless and the starving and she she feels that massively wealthy christian churches should be doing more so she goes undercover working in the mormon church headquarters um as kind of an expose to gather the info she needs 
But as she goes along, she starts to see that there's some really amazing friends that she's getting close to. And then she has to wrestle with kind of what to do with with the info she found and with her new friends. And so it, that's kind of a quick nutshell about it. Um, I'm guessing yeah. the info she finds out has to do with around $180 billion in the bank and very little of it going out to help people. You got it. Yep. And there's a song here that we want to play a part of. It's a musical, correct? Yeah, it's a full-blown musical. And did you write the music and everything? I did. I wrote all the music, and we have a very talented script writer and director. Um, and he he uh, he wrote the script, and he's directing it. His name is Chris Metz, M-E-T-Z. Thank you for mentioning him, too. So here's a bit of a, a song. What song is this? Is this The Good Shepherds, or is it a different song within the musical? Uh, you're talking about the one-minute promo video? Yes, we have it up on the screen yeah. now. It's the one with you, front and center. Yeah, so that's the opening song. It's called We Are The Rock Stars, and it also has a couple other songs in that promo video. It's a minute long. Can we play that, Bill? Sure. And I cannot hear the... Audio bill. Hey, Bill, you're muted, but I still can't hear the audio. You can't hear it? Give me a no. second. Let's uh, figure out why it's doing that. Um, I got to say you're muted again, by the way. Yeah, no, no sweat. <laughs> Let's see here. Everything's on my end. It says it's doing the right thing. Let me uh, let me try to take it off and put it back on. Stop screen, share, share screen, share system audio. Dave, we may have to you screen. we may have to have you do an impromptu version outside the theater there. Let's try it again. Let's see what happens here. Okay. A slew of gut-wrenching songs, says the Washington Post. A story of redemption. A voice for the forgotten. The Good Shepherds. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dave. If, is there anything else you want to tell our audience about this show to hopefully get members from our audience that live in Utah, give them the chance to come out and see this great show? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, please come and support it. it. It has such a powerful message of just unity and hope and accepting yourself. And um, it's going to be great. So, yeah. Come check it out. Thank you so much for this quick interview, guys. Yeah, Absolutely. I think the message will resonate with the audience. So great. Oh, I yeah. think so. Definitely. We work to get you on here. Want to make sure our audience knows about it at least. Good luck to you with this weekend. And I wish you all the best and a packed house every night. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. See ya. Thanks, Bye-bye.
All right. I hope everybody who has it. If I lived in Utah, I'd be going to see that show. I tell you this weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife and I over the last couple of years have begun kind of taking in more concerts and plays and things. And uh, if that was in my neck of the woods in southern Utah, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly be going. Well, we've got that out of the way. <laughs> Now. now we got yeah. Now we've got a show to do. So yeah. I'll tell you, I was really preparing kind of a light show this week. We were going to just talk a little bit about that sex abuse stuff going on in, inside the Mormon Church, and then show a couple other videos. A little bubbly little, conversation about the child sex abuse cover-up. Yeah, and I thought I have no problem. Light talking, and frothy. Yeah, I thought I have no problem. We'll cover you know an hour and a half and take a few calls and close it out. But then you went and did, I don't know, thirty-two hours worth of research, I guess. Sorry. In Radio Free Mormon fashion, and uh, you you put you know you push the envelope a little bit. So now now I've got to uh, help make this show cover all the stuff that you shared with me that you uh, that you found. So let's get started because there's a lot to do. By the way, I got a haircut. You mentioned it. It's the one of the worst haircuts of my life. I'm going to try to show this side more than that side. So we're going to try to do that. I do not but, think Herman uh, Munster would have any problem with that haircut. Though. No, it, this lady fastest haircut I've ever had too. I think those two things go hand in hand. How long so, does that haircut take, Bill? But about four and a half minutes. That long. <laughs> all right. So with a bad haircut and all, uh, we're going to, I can't throw stones about the hair jokes. No, I no, no. Know, I, I, I understand. I live as much as she house. cut off. I, yeah, I still got a few more strands than you. <laughs> I'm more like grandpa. I'm more like Herman. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the what we want to talk about tonight is in depth this all this uh, child sex abuse stuff that's going on in the LDS church. Right. I think I think the audience is going to find that maybe we're even a little too fair tonight as we kind of cover this. But this is a messy, non-black and white kind of complex issue. I think you'll find that there are parts where we see that the church did some things seriously wrong and maybe some places where we make an argument that we can kind of see why they did what they did and what their reasons are for that. And we'll go into that. So let's start off. The first thing we need to talk about is, and I wonder if you can maybe start us off going into detail about this, but what is the Arizona law? Uh, how is Arizona law set up so that we can understand what kind of rules the church has, the, has to kind of fit its behavior into. If it's okay, Bill, can you give me a couple minutes just so we can go over the facts of this case? I would That'd like to try and make this, please. Um, if somebody doesn't have all the time that is necessary to listen to all the podcasts that are going on about this right now, or read all, all the articles, hopefully we can make this into about an hour uh, one-stop shopping where people can find out what the case is about and hopefully some legal analysis, which may or may not be being heard on other podcasts. So the facts of the case, I got your green light, Bill. Yep. Okay. So the problem here and the issue here is that, first off, we all know that the church has a hotline, which bishops and stake presidents are required by the church to call if there are any allegations or confessions or circumstances coming to their, in their knowledge that there could be child abuse or neglect going on. This story is about child sex abuse. We're going to stick with that for purposes of this um, podcast. So what happens then is that, first off, I wanna say that in every single state of the union, there are different laws on the books about mandatory reporting. And if I can start with this, because I think that there's a confusion that has arisen um, among some people, including the church, when they discuss this, 
that tends to conflate and confuse two different issues. The first issue has to do with the priest penitent privilege, sometimes called the, the clergy penitent privilege. Originally, it was the priest penitent privilege. And using that and talking about that, but confusing a privilege with the mandatory reporter laws in every state, because those are two completely different things. The first thing about a privilege is, is that there are a number of different privileges in the law. Of course, I deal with the attorney-client privilege a great deal. There's attorney-client privilege, there's priest-penitent privilege, uh, there's privileges uh, regarding uh, therapy, medical stuff, um, a lot of financial stuff that's privileged and cannot be simply given out by the person who holds the information without some kind of due process or court order. So that's the first thing. So a privilege has nothing to do with reporting something to police. That's the first thing I want to make clear. A privilege has to do with what evidence is admissible when you get all the way down the road and now you're in court, you're at a trial. So there, any reporting that has happened, happened a long time before you get to any privileges. Privileges are rules that govern the admissibility of evidence at trial. If a person has a privilege, then they can assert that privilege. There's also a spousal privilege, right? If a man and a woman, they're married and something happens, one of them gets charged with something that happens during the course of their marriage. And the main rule, without getting into all the exceptions, okay. The main rule is that if the husband is being prosecuted for a crime, the prosecutor does not get to call the wife to have the wife testify about things the husband told her in confidence that implicate him in the crime. Okay. Did that part make sense, Bill? Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's not the prosecutor's privilege. It's not the defense attorney's privilege. It's not the other spouse's privilege. The privilege is held by, and this is an important issue for privileges, who holds the privilege, which means who can assert the privilege. And it's the spouse against whom the testimony would be given. Okay. In a similar way, I have clients who come in and talk to me. I'm a defense attorney and have been for a number of years now. So here in the underground bunker, a lot of conversations have happened where many, many things have been told me in confidence. When they were told to me in confidence by a client, I do not get to go out and tell somebody else what my client told me. And it doesn't really make any difference who that person is, whether it's uh, a friend, uh, somebody on the street corner, certainly not the prosecutor, certainly not the police. Those things are privileged and only the client can authorize the release of that information by me. I don't have the power or the authority to release that information. Okay, so that's the privilege. Trying not to beat the dead horse, but the privilege will probably come up again later. Now, that's one set of statutes. The statutes really that we're talking about here, I believe, are not the privilege statutes, although they get brought up, hence the confusion. The issue that's being brought up here are the statutes in every state that talk about the requirements of different people to report allegations or beliefs of child sex abuse, okay? So it's at the very beginning. And every state is gonna have a statute on this. Different states have different statutes because they have different legislatures. But there is gonna be one of three kinds of statutes, okay? Generally speaking, among all 50 states, there's gonna be a certain number of states that say, you have to disclose this to the clergy. There's no discretion involved. You don't get to pick or choose whether you disclose a confession of child abuse 
to the police. You are required by the law to do so. So that would be a law that makes a clergy member or in a Mormon sense, the bishop, right? Or state president. We're just going to talk about the bishop mostly. That would make a bishop a mandatory reporter. And so if a bishop in a state like that, and I believe Oregon is such a state, for example, that they have no discretion, they just have to report it under the law, then the bishop has to report it under the law. In other states, it's exactly the opposite. And in these other states, if a bishop gets a confession from somebody that's given in you know, the office in a, confessing, in a confessing kind of environment and all these other different kinds of things, it's confidential, it's in the bishop's office, it's being told as part of a confession. If the bishop gets that information in other states, then they are required to not report it to the police. And I think such a state is perhaps New York, though I haven't looked at those statutes in Oregon and New York. I read about them, but I haven't looked at the statutes the way I've looked at the statute in Arizona, because Arizona is the third kind of state. First kind of state is you absolutely cannot, under the law, report this. The second kind of state is you uh, must report this under the law. But then there's the third group of states, which gives discretion to the clergy member and gives a choice to the bishop. That's the kind of law that governs in Arizona under their reporter statute. So basically what it says is this, all right? Basically, if a bishop gets a confession of child abuse or something else that's going on with a child, the Arizona statute says that they may, and may is a very important word in the law, so is shall, because may is discretionary, shall is obligatory. But under the Arizona statute, the bishop has the discretion to report such a confession to the police if it happens in Arizona. Let me come down here to the part in the outline where I have this statute and it's long and it's convoluted, but basically that's what it says. So what it says here is, if you're a member of the clergy who has received a confidential communication or a confession in that person's role as a member of the clergy. So it's got to be acting as a bishop. And that's important too, we should note, because yeah. if somebody serves in a dual position, let's say you're a state highway patrolman and you're the bishop of a ward, when you're wearing the hat of the bishop in the ward, you operate under though that uh, criteria, um, right? You could make that argument. Oh, yes. You can make lots of different arguments. And I'm sure that that has come up in a number of legal cases. Right. People wear two different hats. And one of the hats was you picked the Washington State Patrol. It could also be a school teacher yeah. or a nurse where you're a mandatory reporter. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and it works the other way, too. So that if you're a bishop, but you got this confession, not as serving in the capacity of bishop, but because of your employment in law enforcement, the rules would then apply differently. So it's important that they're noting that it occurs during a confession or a, what did they say was the other thing? A, um, uh, a communication or confession, right? So some type of received a confidential communication or a confession in that person's role as a member of the clergy. It would have to be while they're wearing that hat. Yes, I believe so. So basically this huge paragraph, uh, paragraph A under the law says, anybody who reasonably believes that a minor is or has been the victim of physical injury, abuse, or child abuse has to report it. But there's an exception for clergy, see? And what it says is, 
if the clergy or the bishop, they, if they receive this confession or this information, they may, there's that word may, they may withhold reporting of the communication or confession. Okay. So have they a- have the option to withhold it and not report it, which means they also have the option to report it. Right. Was there someone who just joined us? Yeah. yeah I, I just, okay. um, so I was wondering if, uh, so if this is in a confessional, right. And, um, and let's say it's a state that can't, he can't just go ahead and talk about it. Um, that's only for the confessor, for the abuser confessing. Correct. So if, if he heard it from the victim, uh, or from anybody else, then he doesn't have that clergy penitent privilege because it's not in a confessional. Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct. Of course, you shifted to the privilege. Okay, that's true. I did, but I do still have a question about, and it is about the privilege, but I was wondering if if there's a way to kind of get around that. Could he have brought in the girl who was being abused? Let's say if, again, he could have. We, we know he could have said it the whole time, mm-hmm. but... Um, could he talk to, or could somebody, could a bishop in this situation in a state where they can't report it because it came from the abuser, can they not do an interview with the child, you know, and see if they can get it out of the child and then say, well, the child told me, so now I'm like free from that. I can now report. That was my question. Well, now you're getting into things about the church internal stuff as well. Obviously you could do that under the law, I believe. Okay. That was my question under the law is, is yeah, could, would that be a way to maybe if you're wanting to try to stop some horrific abuse that you know about, but yes. you can't because of exactly who told you and yeah. you need to get from someone else. Can you try to get that out from somebody else so that you can get around it? That was my question. Right. If the wife, of course, I think at the time this all started, the kid was very young, but if the wife or the child uh, was old enough to say something, if the wife or the child had said something first, then... I I think that Bishop would have been mandatory to report it, right? It wasn't a confession. I don't know. And once again, you see, this is why we've got judges in all of these different states to interpret the laws of all of these different states. But looking at this statute, which it says, a member of the clergy who has received a confidential communication Mm. or a confession. See, those aren't the same thing, are they? No, no. The confession is from the person who did it. A confidential communication could describe what... Maven's talking about with a wife coming yeah, to somebody. If it's said in confidence, which means nobody else is present, and this is confidential, that in the course of, dis- of the discipline enjoined by the church to which the member of the clergy belongs, that clergy, the bishop, may withhold reporting of the communication or confession if the member of the clergy determines that it is reasonable and necessary within the concepts of the religion. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> So what you can, what I can see anyway, in the way this is drafted, is to try and make it as broad as possible. But they have to put in, or at least the people who drafted this, I think probably correctly felt they needed to put in this exception about the clergy. They can withhold it if the clergy member believes that it is reasonable and necessary within the concepts of the religion. Obviously, the religion to which the clergyman belongs, Mormonism yeah. in this case, right? Correct. Because if you don't have that in there then you're running a real risk of running afoul of the First Amendment. Right, right. And, and that part, if that runs afoul of the First Amendment, which I think we understand is uh, that um, uh, establishment of religion clause and freedom of religion clause. Right, if the religion requires, be, right, if the religion requires uh, a member of their faith to do something 
Um, generally speaking, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, the the government laws have to respect that. Oh, right. Because uh, the next step, and I don't know if this happened in Arizona, would be to take something like this that actually happened, take it up on appeal and say this is unconstitutional and ask for the Supreme Court of Arizona, excuse me, right. to issue a ruling on that. Mm-hmm. And, if, you know, even up to the U.S. Supreme Court, because it would be a federal constitutional issue. Anyway. Right. After it says that, notice what it does say, because you can tell the way it's drafted is trying to restrict it as much as they feel they can within constitutional limits. It goes on to say, this is the statute right after that part. It says, this exemption applies only to the communication or confession and not to personal observations the member of the clergy may otherwise make of the minor. Okay? Right. So if a clergy, I'll just say clergyman, it's always going to be a man in Mormonism, sorry. But if the bishop sees something or observes something about the minor, which I think would include a conversation, as long as it's not supposed to be confidential, (laughs) anyway, uh, that that can be reported. But notice this is within the context of an entire statute that allows discretion on the part of the clergy to make that report or to not make that report. So that's the critical thing here, because it was in Arizona that this whole thing happened. The thumbnail version of it is that there was a girl who was, uh, I think she was five years old at the time that her father, who worked for the Border Patrol in Arizona, uh, he was an active member of the LDS Church, came to his bishop originally struggling with pornography issues. And in the course of talking with his bishop about his pornography, issues, he mentions that he's been sexually abusing his daughter, who was five years old at the time. So what the bishop does, whose name is Herod, H-E-R-R-O-D, two R's in this name. He's also a family physician, this bishop. Again, the two hats. Yes, which I think is very interesting, Um, only because he has, yes, he has many different obligations, but apparently what he did was he just did exactly what he was told to by the church. So we know that the church has a hotline. It's been in the news. We know that the church mandates all of its bishops and state presidents when they receive any kind of a confession or information or allegation like this, they have to call the hotline. And what it ends up happening when they call the hotline is they don't talk to an attorney at first. We know it goes to Kurt McConkie. By the way, the information I'm going off of is the AP story that was published on August 4th of 2022 and, and is making quite the stir. I've studied it carefully. I think I understand what it has to say. Uh, if anybody disagrees with me, please feel free to leave a comment or call in. But what happens is when you call in, you're not talking to a lawyer because they're getting tons of these calls all the freaking time. In fact, one of the lawyers who's quoted says uh, he has a cell phone with him 24-7 for these calls to come in, but he's not the first stop because lawyers are more expensive than just frontline clerk people, right? So what they have is frontline clerk people taking all of these calls. And what these frontline clerk people have is for every call that comes in, they've got a sheet which has a template with questions that they are to ask, answers they are to give and write down, and instructions for the person who is answering the phone. And the purpose of screening these calls is to see if the call and the allegation is something that is going to be serious enough and put the church in sufficient financial risk civilly that it gets passed on to a lawyer. Okay. That's what the front line is for. And they have, um, the AP got a bunch of 
uh, FOIA requested documents from, from a West Virginia case that's a bit older than the one that's ongoing now in Arizona. That can also cause a little bit of confusion. And it was through putting all this information together that they were able to get a better bead on what goes on in the Arizona case with this hotline. So they have a blank in discovery, or at least in their FOIA request, they have a blank of this sheet that is used by the screeners. And there's a number of things on it. First off, they're directed, they are not to get any identifying information from the people yeah. involved, only first names, not last names. Yeah, so, I was going to just note, I mean, these are little things you've got highlighted. Mormon leaders established the helpline in 1995. This is from, I believe, the AP article. Yeah. Uh, and, and it operated not within its Department of Family Services, which you would expect, but as you're pointing out, but inside its Office of Risk Management, as you point out too, not only do they not want any personal information, it's first name only. Like as soon as they get on the call, the first thing they're telling you is first name only. That's all we want from you. And that's all we want from anybody you talk about in this call. Um, so that they can figure out, obviously the bishop's given his name, but everybody he's talking about in terms of the circumstances, first name only so that there isn't any liability from these people talking to them. Like if I don't like, I don't know, so I can't say anything like this is all right. secret. Right. So only first names. And then they're, they're asked for three main pieces of information, which will be of interest as to whether it gets passed on to a lawyer or whether lawyers don't have to get involved. The first one is, is this done by a member? Is the allegation about the abuse? Is the perpetrator who's alleged to have done it a an official in the church, um, like a bishop or a young men's president? All right, that's one thing. Second thing is, was this done while it was on a an official church activity, right? And the third thing is, is this really serious? Because if it's done by a person who is acting within the scope of their church calling, the church is civilly liable, potentially, and likely. If it happens in a church activity, the odds go up the church is going to be civilly liable. In other words, if they sue, the church is going to have to respond and pay a lot of money. And it's going to bring a lot of bad publicity to the church. And the third thing is, if it's really outrageous and egregious, well, still, that's something that they want the lawyers to handle. So if it matches enough of those criteria, then the phone line gets transferred to a lawyer. Kurt and the person's talking to a lawyer. Yes, with Kurt yeah. McConkie. Now... Once again, this person who's screening it, at the end of every day, all those forms where they've written down this information, they're all destroyed. Yeah. That's why the only one they have is a blank form <laughs> because they don't have any that have anything that's in them written because all those get destroyed. And yeah, when it's I in a church that, that keeps meticulous records, everything right, here right. is destroyed. Well, sometimes it's just as important what you don't keep. Yeah, no, no. I, as what you do I keep. And this is this is lawyers involved. This is lawyers all the way around. Because what they don't want to have at the end of the day is have any documents that can be subpoenaed in a potential lawsuit. So they just destroy them as part of their policy. Boom. They're clean. And I think what they're trying to do is remove the screeners from the equation as much as possible so that they have a very solid argument that when it comes to any reports that have been made to church legal, that now this becomes attorney-client attorney with Curtin McConkey for the church client, the bishop who's calling. So then they can say that these are confidential and those don't have to be disclosed later on. Yeah. Just to reiterate that the article said church officials say that all calls referred to Curtin McConkey lawyers are covered by attorney client privilege and remain out of the reach of prosecutors and victims attorneys. The church has always regarded those communications between its lawyers and local leaders as attorney client privileged 
said Paul writing the director of risk management in a sealed affidavit. Yes. And they try and get away with an awful lot under the attorney client privilege. Yeah. You've run into that a few times, haven't you? Oh yes, I have. In fact, yeah, if I remember right, as you were appealing some stuff there with uh, the BYU police department, uh, from what I heard, again, I just going off of tone and words used by that appeals committee, but they saw some serious issues, it seemed like, but they couldn't do anything about it because attorney-client privilege. Oh, you're muted. My you're sense muted. was... There you go. Sorry about that. <laughs> go ahead. My sense was that the church was trying to use, and effectively did use, attorney-client privilege as okay. a sword instead of a shield. Yeah. No, no. It it kept us from finding out some good stuff, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, I found it all out anyway. But uh, <laughs> regardless, regardless, the discovery process can be a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. However, however, getting back to what we're talking about here, Mr. Real, in subsection L of this convoluted statute from Arizona, that's where it says, okay, is it L? Let me see here. That might not be it. Um that was actually a different point, and that's not the point I want to make. Let me see here. Um, there is the part yeah, in I think here it is. where it says, is, is it L? Yeah, I've got it here if you want me to read it. Yeah, would you? Because this is the part where it says in the statute that if anybody makes a report to law enforcement in good faith because they believe or have reason to believe that there's some kind of child sex abuse or other negligence going on, that they are immune from civil or criminal liability. Yeah. So this is Arizona law. This is section L in any civil or criminal litigation in which a child's neglect, dependency, physical injury, abuse, child abuse, or abandonment is an issue. A member of the clergy, a Christian science practitioner, or a priest shall not without his consent be examined as a witness concerning any confession made to him in his role as a member of the clergy, a Christian science practitioner or a priest in the course of discipline and joined by the church to which he belongs. This subsection does not discharge a member of the clergy, a Christian science practitioner or a priest from the duty to report pursuant to subsection uh, A of this section. Yeah. And actually that's not the section I was looking oh, for. You see how complicated this is. What this does is in one section, it is actually talking about the distinction between the requirement to report and the ability to testify, the privilege versus the mandatory reporting statute. So this is talking a lot more about the the privilege. Did that part make sense? Yeah, but I just don't I don't see another section highlighted. So I'm just trying to. That's find okay. Be examined as a witness. Yeah, and I appreciate it. I'm not sure where it went, but I will tell you that I did find it. I did underline it in at least one permutation of my notes. I've been having some computer problems this week and trying to get And there's a ton of stuff here too. Yeah, but it does specifically state that if in good faith you do report this to law enforcement, then you are immune from any civil or criminal liability for making that report. That's important, all right? Because what happens here in Arizona is you've got this member who has been abusing his child. Now, I've I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks now and why it is that this particular story out of all the stories and there have been a lot of them, Bill, about this kind of cover-up with the church, the child sex abuse, very negative press. And it seems to come out like once a month in the past few years. It really seems to be accelerating, at least as far as uh, the publicity. But this story really seems to have caught the attention 
of the country in a way that prior stories have not, at least not that I've been aware. And I think one of the reasons, go ahead. I was going to say, it's it's Section J, and I think this is important because I think the audience needs to understand that at least on the books that this bishop or the church in this instance couldn't have been sued over this point, right? A person who furnishes a report— This is going to be a technicality, but an important one. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. So a person who furnishes a report, information, or records required or authorized under this section— again, required because some things are required and authorized because some is discretionary up to the person— but if you do it, you are still authorized to do it if you chose to do it. Under the section, or a person who participates in a judicial or administrative proceeding or investigation resulting from a report, information, or records required or authorized under this section is immune from any civil or criminal liability by reason of that action unless the person acted with malice or unless the person has been charged with or is suspected of abusing or neglecting the child or children in question. Right. Yeah, it's only going to cover a good faith report, but you can't do it maliciously to try and get somebody in trouble with the law or something like that and still have the protection of the law (laughs) against being sued. So, But this says he can't, whoever reports it couldn't be sued. No, it says they're immune. (laughs) Okay, let me go ahead. Please. And to say what that means. All that means is in this country, anybody can be sued for anything. All you have to do sure. is go down to the courthouse and file a lawsuit. Boom, you're sued. All right. But if you end up falling into this category in Arizona, you made a good faith report to law enforcement about child sex abuse, right? And someone files a lawsuit against you, which is probably going to be someone associated with the person you made the report against. Then you have a statutory defense, which means that lawsuit is not going to get very far without it being dismissed. In fact, that's apparently what happened with a similarly situated case in Oregon from a couple of years ago, which is mentioned in the materials. And in Oregon, uh, apparently it's just, you've got to report it to police. The bishop reported it to police. There's no discretion involved, right? And so the guy gets arrested, he gets prosecuted, he gets into prison for 10 years, and his wife comes and files suit against the bishop and the church for reporting it to police and violating the confidence because they lost all of the consortium, they lost his income for the time that he's gone, all these different things that they are suing the church for. That apparently did not go very far before it was dismissed, but still, it was a lawsuit. The church and the bishop were sued, and they had to defend up to the point where they were able to get it dismissed. And I just want to note, um, when it talked about how it first starts off with Whoever answers the phone, they're in some sort of different capacity. They go through an interview list, kind of sorting out which ones they can kind of handle and then which ones need to be passed on to Curtin McConkie. Once it gets passed on to Curtin McConkie, it sounds like it stops there because the one quote from the AP article said uh, that the person that they talked to from the law firm, Joseph Osmond, one of Curtin McConkie's lawyers, um, he said whenever – he was the guy you were talking about who has his phone on him and gets calls at any time of day, and he takes those calls, he says. And then he said uh, he acknowledged that he did not refer calls to a social worker and wouldn't know how to do so. I think it's it's important to note that once this gets to Curtin McConkie, even after they handle the legality part of it, it's not like they're handing it on to somebody who can actually help uh, these kids or victims in these cases. He doesn't even know who to call. So it stops with the lawyers. They would put it back on the bishop to do or not do something, and they would probably keep their end of paperwork that is attorney-client privileged. Um, but he's not 
those lawyers aren't afterward trying to seek out additional help for these kids or these victims. Right. They have one job and I'm trying to be as fair as possible. And I think it may pain some people how fair I'm going to try and be tonight, but it seems pretty clear that the lawyers have one job and that is protecting the interests of the church as a business entity. Yeah. Okay. There, these, the attorneys uh, for the church do not represent the interests of the individual members of the church. They represent the interests of the church as a business organization and the way they act proves it. Yeah. And, and from there, uh, so we've talked about what is Arizona law. We've talked about what constitutes the church's helpline under whose direction and what is the purpose. And now I can um, segue a little bit more into the facts of the case. Yeah. Because now it'll, I hope it'll make more sense. At least it did to me. So we've got this bishop, Herod, in Arizona, the family physician, who has this guy, this father, who works for the Border Patrol, Paul Douglas Adams, come in and confess to him that he's sexually abusing his daughter. And the bishop calls the hotline. Now you know what the law in Arizona says. The bishop, I would presume, did not know. He's a doctor. He's not a lawyer. That's why he's calling the hotline to find out from the experts what it is that Arizona law requires him to do or what would be illegal for him to do in Arizona. So let me start off in being fair by saying that with a situation where you do have every single state has different laws and the people who are the bishops are not lawyers, they shouldn't be presumed to know what the law is. I think the church has an interest in making sure that in a complicated situation like this, a bishop or other church representative does not violate the law, which would put the church in um, legal jeopardy. Makes sense, right? So I think that to that extent, it makes sense to have a hotline for all the bishops to call so they can talk to an expert with church legal and find out what it is the law in their state requires of them so they don't break the law. I mean, I can imagine being a bishop and being in a situation like this and not knowing anything about the law. This is your lifeline. This is what you're told that you are required to call is this hotline. And then doing what it is that you're told to do. The problem with this case, Bill, is that according to the bishop, he called the hotline and he was told you absolutely can do nothing. Right. He's point blank said, do not report this. Right. This is what the bishop said in a recorded interview with law enforcement, that he was told by church legal, you absolutely can do nothing. Now, that is not what the law in Arizona says. Right. He you have was, a choice. Yeah. To the extent that this is correct, what he's remembering, and by, I, I don't see the church mm -mm. disputing that anywhere. And in fact, by the way, Herod... I yeah, I made. I feel like the wording was kind of weaselly that okay. way. Um, I mean, okay, this is just like going back when I was a kid. I wanted to go somewhere and do an activity, but it was my day to watch the the kid brother. And so um, my mom said that I could go to whatever activity it was if I got my other brother, the one that was older, closer to my age, to agree to watch Kid Brother, which I knew he would not in a million years. And so I was trying to think, is there like a way that I can word it to be technically correct, but make it sound like he has to? And so and what I said, I used that word can. I, I called up my brother and I said, hey, um, I want to go to this thing with my friends. And mom said, 
you can watch brother. So I said, can, I didn't say had to, you know, so he was under the uh, understanding that he had to. And I never said that because that was something my mom made very clear to me is I would be in trouble if I told him he had to. So I didn't. And I feel like that's kind of the same thing going on here. You absolutely can do nothing, which technically he could do nothing if it's Arizona, right? But he It's up to, it's his discretion. So he could do nothing. No. He could also support. I just got he what you're saying. I just got what you were saying. That's what I, yeah. that's what I feel like this, I feel like they did what I did, but I feel like what I did with is, is far less the, egregious. This the trouble, here. yeah, the trouble, Maven, though, is that the church follows it up. The bishop also records um, the church officials told him he had to keep what Adams told him confidential or he could be sued if he went to authority. So I agree with you. The wording is sort of ambiguous and can be understood two different ways. But the reality is they also followed it up with language that imposed that their stance is he not report it. And if he does, there would be consequences which he would be liable for. Which I think also what they're saying is technically true. But like RFM was saying that he would, they wouldn't, it would, it would be unlikely right. that he actually would be sued. Arizona law exempts him essentially. And, right. right. And the church wouldn't back him up. Right. RFM. So right. I don't know how close, I don't know how close what he's saying replicates what it was he was told, but let's say it replicates it exactly. If you're saying you can do nothing, that means you have can the ability to do nothing. It's not you but, may but, do nothing, right? Yeah. Or you may. It's you can do nothing. And if you can yeah. do nothing, that means you have the ability to do nothing, right? Yeah. And the ability to do something. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. You can do nothing. Does that mean you can do something? You can do know. nothing or you could do something. Like, I understand That's what Maven's saying. I, it is a yeah. twist on words. It could be mm -hmm. understood the other way. But they they then say more things that impose they are to be understood as do not report this. If you do, you're on your own. Well, like when Joseph Smith goes to Van Buren and asks for help with the problem in Missouri and Van Buren is reported to have said, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. I can do nothing for he you. He wasn't saying, oh, or I could. Right. Or, well, actually, he is saying he could, but he's just not going to. It's one yeah. of those ways we get out of uh, doing right. things with using softer language, right? Right. But regardless of that, very interesting though. By Maven, it's so good to see you tonight. How are you doing? Doing all right. I heard you put in a long day at Mormon Stories. Um, a long week, I think. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Covering a lot of this, it's and I there's know. a lot of good information there too. If people want to hear more, and especially the interviews with Tim Krasnov, I found really, really interesting. Um, just deep diving into all of this stuff. Yeah. Yes. So we'll have some more legal analysis here. From this and thanks for the donations we've just got a couple in so i just wanted to shout that oh, out great. thank you thank you so much so yeah. um having mentioned that part about you can't i can't do nothing for you your cause is just but you can't you can't do anything bishop so in other yeah. words the problem here is that church legal is giving him wrong advice because he could do something because the statute gives him the discretion to do something if he wants and not only does the statute give the clergy discretion to do something it also makes the clergy member immune from a lawsuit. Yeah. He's not going to be liable. So, yeah, he could be sued, but it wouldn't go anywhere. Wouldn't go now, anywhere. here's the problem. Okay, now let's let's go into this because I'm glad you brought this part up. A lot of people are missing this part, and I think it's a very important part of the story, Bill, which is where Bishop Herod says he was also told on the hotline that if he goes against the advice of church legal, then he can be sued individually. So let's talk about respondeat superior. 
It's a legal doctrine is what lawyers tend to do is they take very common sense types of things, say it in Latin and try and wow the masses and make them sound smarter than they are. Respondiat superior is simply a legal doctrine, which with, with which I think most people are familiar. If I've got a company and I've got employees, my company can be held liable for the actions of the employees. If those employees' actions are negligent, they cause harm proximately to another person, and if the employee was acting within the scope of his employment at the time of the event. Okay, I think that pretty much covers it all. But the main thing is, is that um, most people are employees of, of somebody, all right? But they're not always acting as an employee. It's like an employee is only an employee when he's acting as such. And it's true. I mean, uh, if I've got an employee, and let's just call him Roger, and he's working for me and he's doing something within the course of his employment and he really screws up or gets in a fight or something with somebody, I can, my business can be held liable for the actions of the employee. But if he's just out at a bar one night and he's not doing anything related to business, he's just going out to a bar, gets in a bar fight. Well, he's responsible. I'm not responsible just because he's my employee. He's not doing anything related to his employment at the bar. So that's this thing about respondeat superior. Now take this and apply it to the church. And what we just talked about with what the hotline told Bishop Herod, that if he goes against what the church tells him to do, then he can be sued in his individual capacity. That's correct. Which would scare the hell out of him and likely did. I would think that's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> because apparently they didn't follow it up by saying, but that lawsuit would go nowhere because you have statutory defense. No. It's right there in subsection right. J, right? Okay. So if a bishop calls the hotline, which they're required to do, and if the bishop follows the direction given to him by the church hotline, and then if a lawsuit follows against the bishop and the church, okay, the bishop in his individual capacity, the church in its corporate capacity, then the bishop is not being sued only in his individual capacity. The difference is, is that the church lawyers, church legal is going to back the bishop and it's gonna back the church at the same time because they are acting as one. Mm -hmm. The bishop did what the church told him to do. Their interests are aligned. Mm -hmm. But if this church, excuse me, if this bishop, Herod in this case, had said, I hear what you're telling me, church, that I'm not to report this, but I cannot live with that on my conscience. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to call the police anyway, and I'm going to tell them what this member of my church just confessed to me so they can conduct a police investigation. And now, if that bishop gets sued, the church is nowhere around him. The cheese stands alone. Because what he did was specifically not within the scope of his employment. In fact, he was acting counter to the directions received explicitly within the scope of his employment. So now he's got to face the music alone and he doesn't have church legal representing him. For instance, in this case where uh, not only was there the first bishop, but a second bishop who also found out the, the replacing bishop for the first bishop, I think it was Mousy. First bishop is Herod with two R, second bishop Mousy. They're five years each. A couple of years go by. First bishop tries to do what he can to get, oh, the mom to report to police or do something. She's basically emotionally dead. He recognizes this. 
Um, I think you don't have to be a family physician to recognize that, but it probably didn't hurt. He knew that wasn't going to go anywhere. And he, he it was going coming to a dead end and nothing happened, nothing happened. Finally, it drops off the radar and he forgets about it, basically. Shifts to a new bishop. He tells the new bishop about the problem. The new bishop gets the same information from the church. He doesn't report it. So what happens is that this girl who's five years old in around 2010, when the initial report was made by Bishop Herod, ends up being continuing to be sexually um, abused in horrific ways and filmed and put up on the Internet by her dad for another seven years. Not only that, the bishop does get excommunicated. Excuse me. The father. The Border Patrol agent, Adams, does get excommunicated a couple of years later by the second bishop, by the way. I don't know why that is. Why did that take so long? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it didn't take that long for you, did it? No, it didn't. <laughs> well, it did. It took years. But once I said what needed to be said, it didn't take long at all. Just a few weeks. Oh, true, true. I warned you against <laughs> that, if you'll recall. Yeah. Anyway. anyway, But yeah, so he finally gets um, excommunicated in around 2015 or so. It might be 2013. And after that, there's a new daughter that's born, and that, that apparently this, this new daughter, the second victim, is not is only six weeks old before he starts doing the same kind of stuff with this um, other daughter. So now there's a new daughter involved. There's another, and this finally comes to the attention of police in 2007. It was seven years after the original confession. I think I'm in 17, 2017. Seven years after the original confession in 2010, it only comes to attention of law enforcement through strictly law enforcement means. It pops up in a video in New Zealand and they end up, it was a horrible, horrible video. And they get on it. They do all the technological stuff they can do. They bring it back to this person. They finally catch this guy. Okay. They catch this guy seven years now after he had confessed it to his bishop. His bishop calls the hotline and is told incorrectly according to the story, that he can do nothing and that if he reports it to police, then he's going to stand alone and he can be sued civilly. Okay. So this is an egregious story and it did not have to happen. This girl did not have to continue to be abused for seven more years. Her sister who wasn't even born yet doesn't have to be another victim if the bishop had called the police, which I'm really punting more to if the church had advised him correctly. Because I get the feeling this is what's going on here, Bill. I get the feeling that the problem, okay, there's a couple of real uh, foci, if you'll pardon my French, for this problem. And one of them is this, is that we have those three different kinds of statutes on the mandatory reporters or permissive reporters in the 50 different states. Some are very clear. You can never report it. Okay, well, that's easy. You can't report it. Some are very clear. You have to report it. Okay, that's easy for church legal. You have to report it. And I'm expecting, I could be wrong, I'm expecting that in clear-cut cases like that, the information given out is probably, it should be just as clear-cut. The problem, I think, is in this intermediate group of states that allow for some discretion to the bishop or the clergy in making this report. And I'm getting the sense well, let, let me let me uh, back up from what I'm getting the sense of. I think that this AP story illustrates that at least in this one instance, what Church Legal did was it revealed that in this intermediate body of states that give discretion to the clergy, 
they treat those as if the clergy had no discretion when giving advice to bishops who are calling it. Yeah, let me let me say it a different way. So in the states where it is mandatory that clergy not report it, the church encourages them not to report it. In the states where it is mandatory to report it, the church uh, knows the laws and it, it, it counsels its bishops and stake presidents and other leaders that it would talk to to report the, the abuse. In the states where people have a choice, the church, it seems as though, because we get this evidence rolling in, like we're listening to this case right now, but there have been 50 before this one that we've seen go through the papers. Every time the church has a choice, it seems as though the church always chooses to encourage its leaders, uh, and, and encourage is the wrong word, it tells its leaders not to report it. And by the way, you're right, I think, because I think they show their cards in a quote that you highlighted in this AP article. Um, you highlighted one that says there is nothing inconsistent between identifying cases that may pose litigation risk to the church and complying with reporting obligations, church lawyers said in a sealed legal filing. In other words, they are always going to follow the law and where the law allows them to minimize their li their liability, they do so. And encouraging their leader to not report it decreases their liability. And that may seem silly to some, but I think we'll get into that here in a little bit when we have a discussion. By saying there is nothing inconsistent between identifying cases that may pose litigation risk to the church and complying with reporting obligations. In other words, they always fill both of those. Those two aren't butting heads with each other. They are, um, they are always trying to reduce the litigation risk and they're always complying with the rules and laws of the land. Right. And certainly that much is true. In fact, it's axiomatic, right? The problem is what comes between the lines and the way it's put into practice and what it is they're not saying, really. Yeah. Because there isn't anything inconsistent between identifying cases that may pose litigation risks to the church and complying with reporting obligations. No. But here's what happened, okay? And this is speculative on my part after having been a lawyer for 32 years. All right. First off, welcome to my world. This is um, it's a situation where I'm a member of a profession that is almost universally disliked. And it's very common that people tend to hate lawyers until they need one. And when they need one, boy, they want one who's going to be there in their corner fighting for them. So here's what I do as a lawyer. What I do is when a client comes in the door, and we've established an attorney-client relationship. The only thing, virtually, this is the rule, there are exceptions. The thing that matters to me is the interests of my client. That's and it should. I, that's your job. That's what I'm representing, yeah. right? Is the interests of my client. Yeah. What is good for my client, I want to try as best I can by any ethical and legal means to obtain and vice versa, right? Yeah. I'm not interested in who's on the other side. I'm not interested really in anybody else in the world as far as this case goes, except for the client. Yeah. And maybe I can ask a hypothetical question here, mm -hmm. similar to this case. So you're in your ward in Washington and a member of your ward seeks you out as legal representation. They say, RFM, I'd like you to be my lawyer. Uh, I want you to know that... Um, uh, I've been abusing some children and I've stopped. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not, cause that's another important point. I think we need to talk about, which is 
if these leaders suspect future abuse, and by the way, when you read the AP article, every time the church gets the chance, it mentions how this helpline is meant to help stop future abuse. <clears throat> and, and there's reasons for that, right? Because there's a, there's a difference, as you and I were talking off the air, there's a difference between abuse in the past and uh, someone is making a confession versus the uh, leader's awareness in hearing the confession that there is a future abu abuse that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if somebody came to you and sought you out as legal representation, you're representing them as their lawyer. They've abused kids. They they The way they frame it is it's ended. It's behind them. And they say, for instance, they're members of the LDS church because they're members of your ward. The church knows they're going to uh, seek out some sort of discipline um, and they want a confession from that person, for instance. Right. What would you do? Hell no. Right. You're you going to protect to anybody. No. So let's take this hypothetical client, right? And I've been in situations like this before. All right. So if a person comes to me saying, I'm being accused of uh, child's, child abuse, okay? And the church wants to have a disciplinary counsel on me to have me go in there and tell them about what it is I've done and what I haven't done. No, you're not going to do that. Yeah. Okay. The decision is up to you because, you know, you're the client. I'm just the lawyer. Yeah. But the decision is up to you. And so here are your options. You can go in there. You can spill your guts to how many of the 15, 15 witnesses? Well, if it's a, yeah, if it's a, if because it's a priesthood holder, if we're talking about a male, it has to be before the high council in the stake presidency. So 15 people. Not anymore, right. though. So why would you go and do that? I mean, you haven't confessed to anybody else, right? No. So why are you going to tell 15 people stuff that's incriminating when any of those people can go out and tell anybody they want, regardless of what the handbook says, right? Because yeah. you're dealing with 15 guys yeah. and they're going to go tell their wives and the wives are going to go tell people, you know, word gets out of these things. They're not as hush hush as one might think. So I told I told this uh, a person who was in a similar situation to this hypothetical person we've been discussing. Yeah, I mean, if you go and you confess, you're going to get excommunicated. Yeah, and if you don't go, what's the worst they can do to you? Well, excommunicate you. Okay, so really, what you're not talking about is not church discipline. Now you're talking about how long you want to go to prison and how sure you want a ticket to get you there. And a confession is that ticket. So, yeah, your interests, Mr. Hypothetical Client, are not served by going to uh, this church disciplinary. Right. Proceeding. As a lawyer, you're going to do everything you can to minimize, um, what's the word I want to use? Risk. Yeah, liability, Jeopardy. risk, uh, how, how much your client compromises themselves. You're going to uh, counsel them to minimize how much they compromise themselves as much as possible because your job is to represent them. Yes. Yeah. Whereas at least, at least we ought to acknowledge in the church's instance, it says that it is the gold standard of, of uh, helping victims. It is uh, it's, you know, it takes abuse seriously. It, it really does want to help victims. Yeah. It is, it is um, by nature. It is neutral. It is not, the attorney for your client, right? Like as you representing as the attorney, the church is neutral hypothetically. And if anything, it's language indicates that it is chosen to side with victims. Right. And that's a bunch of horse hockey. Yeah.
All right, because every time I, there is, oh, hi, Maven. I, I wanted to pop up. Um, I did have this, I wanted to pull up um, from Alyssa. Um, I don't know if this is true or not, that bishop and stick presidents are advised to exclude yeah, anyone who might be mandatory reporters. Okay, so you, okay. That's 100% true. Yeah. If somebody okay. is a mandatory reporter, they are to be kept out of disciplinary courts, yes. Oh, the okay. other thing that I told this hypothetical client, by the way, Maven, thank you for bringing that up. To avoid that kind of uh, what do you call it conflict that a high councilman or you know whoever might be present would have if they are a teacher or somebody yeah. who might be a mandatory reporter right because i think the idea is to keep those confessions that are made within a disciplinary proceeding confidential i think that's the idea the reality is something different but i think the theory is to keep it confidential yeah. but like i told this hypothetical client they're going to tell you that if you want to be forgiven of this sin, you will have to repent. And part of your repentance process will be making a complete confession to law enforcement. Right. So uh, what we're saying I, here is this, oh, go ahead, Maven. I just wanted to say one more thing, just from some of the other comments, um, is still just kind of being upset about the role of a lawyer and like, you know, why is somebody like this being protected? And I just wanted to point out that it's- Is, is somebody like who being protected, this guy Paul um, I don't, I don't remember who it is, but I, I feel like there's been a few people questioning, okay. but it's a, it's a really important part of our law and our system that both sides are, are represented well. And when you, whether you're guilty or innocent, you, it, it, it's, that's the important part is that you have representation that, you know, that you, I am totally massacring this RFM, but the, the job is to make sure that your client's rights are being protected. So even if someone is guilty of a crime, there are ways that we want to do things in this country to make sure that you know people aren't tortured unnecessarily or that innocent people, as much as we can, don't end up in jail um, because of bad practices, et cetera. So it's important to make sure that the law is doing things the way that it's supposed to and not just, you know, bulldozing over people's rights because we think that they've committed a crime when they have not yet been proven to. Yeah. So it's not just that, you know, it's not that guilty people don't deserve a lawyer or they shouldn't have lawyers. Um, but again, too, if you think about maybe somebody in your family or in your life, you know, that, that has committed a crime, uh, even if it was minor, just there's a lot, there's a lot of range in the consequences. And so, I mean, if you were guilty of a crime, you, yeah, if you're going to get caught and you're going to be found guilty and convicted, uh, you would still want to get the shorter amount of time as possible that you can get versus, you know, the maximum. And that's my understanding, too, as what a lawyer can help with and can make sure that, first of all, an innocent person doesn't screw themselves over and get themselves the maximum kind of punishment for something they did or didn't do. In either scenario, guilty or innocent, that's a horrific outcome for the person when for the same crime that uh, they could do less and be able to get their life back on track. Right. Yeah. And for those people who might be judging RFM, like you have to call RFM, what would happen RFM if you didn't act, if you didn't act in the best interest of your client? Well, that's uh, usually get disbarred or disciplined yeah. in a different. You would, yeah. If, you, if they could prove that you did not act in the best interest of your client, reducing how much they compromise themselves at least suggesting strongly that they do certain things or not do certain things. If it could be shown that you maliciously or uh, intentionally ran counter to that, you could then lose your uh, license to operate as a lawyer. Yeah. Or even just negligently. Yeah. 
So if I if I have a client who comes into this office to retain me, and let's say there's a murder investigation going on, and they think this is the guy who did it, but they don't know, but it looks like it might be. And this guy just spills his guts to me. Yeah, I killed this guy. This is how I did it. And I do it again if I had a chance and you know, all this kind of stuff, right? Well, now I have information that police don't have. And you know, you might think, well, run out and tell the police, hey, just confess to me. He, this is the guy. You're on the right track. <laughs> you know, yeah. let, make it the governor for crying out loud that got killed. It doesn't make any difference who it is, how important you want to make it. I do not get to run to the police and say, oh, hey, 911, guess what? I got a hot lead for you. I just had this guy in my office. He confessed to killing the governor. Um, no, I don't get to do that. And there's a number of reasons that I don't in a number of ways that that's enforced. First is I get disbarred from the practice of law because I have violated my duty to my client big time. Um, the second thing is, is that that evidence doesn't get to go into trial. Anything he told me because that's his privilege. He exercises it. Believe me, he would. It's a that that attorney saying nothing about me. Okay, so uh, I'm gone, and it has made no difference in his case, right. except for the possibility that when police find out from me that he confessed to me, then well, they're already focused on him, so I don't know. It might give them some additional factual information related to the confession that they could then pursue, which they might not know otherwise, which might. Uh, no, I don't think so. That's going to get tossed too, because that's going to be fruit of the poisonous tree. Yeah. So it's just a note: the other side has to share everything they find, right? They have to have full disclosure to. of all their evidence and all that. All that but your material. side, get, your side gets to hold your cards. Oh yeah. In fact, you have to hold your cards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank just you for so, I, that I just up. want people to be clear, because it would be easy in this conversation for folks to go like, "Oh, that RFM, he's a son of a bitch. Why wouldn't he just go tell the police?" And the Maybe reality right about is the first part. Well, the reality, <laughs> the reality is that you would be acting unethically if yeah. you reported the abuse that your client told you, the harm, the danger, the, the crime, the, the offense that he committed or she committed. You would be acting unethically to share that. Yes. Now, one other thing I'm going to throw in here, and a lot of some of this is going to be a bit disjointed. I hope it's more interesting this way as we're talking about it. I had this wonderful outline and things flowed more naturally into I'm each so other. sorry, my friend. No, no, I, I, I delude myself that it actually was a better outline. But here's one of the things that is important for people to know about attorneys. Once again, this is the privilege, right? This is the evidence that can or can't come in at trial and that can get you disbarred. But all this has to do with this guy who murdered, past tense, the governor. If I have a client who comes in and they're a client, there's no question that we have an attorney-client relationship and tells me that not only did he murder the governor, but next week he's going to murder the president or just Joe Schmo down the street. It doesn't have to be the president. What we're talking about is the difference between an accomplished crime, which he's confessing to me about, versus a prospective crime, one that he's planning on doing in the future. All of a sudden, the rules change, even for an attorney. It doesn't make it mandatory upon the attorney to report that, at least not in my state, but it does make it discretionary. So suddenly, if a client says he's going to commit a crime or cause harm or death to somebody or financial, you know, in the future, all of a sudden it's on me and I have the discretion to report it or not report it. And in fact, I've actually done that once. 
even though it was about uh, 20 years ago now. So it's been a long time. I'm not going to mention any names, but I've got a client. It's in a family law matter. Back when he used to do family law. Let's call him Roger. Okay. <laughs> that might be his name. I can't remember. I don't know. I don't okay, know. But anyway, he used that name earlier. So okay. So Roger, Roger Dodger is in here and he's not happy with the results he's getting from the family law judge. And the reason why is probably because he persistently disobeyed the orders from the family law judge as they related to back child support. He wasn't paying. And so he kept getting bad rulings, as you can understand, from the, the family law judge. And he told me, I mean, this guy was kind of excitable. He's a little bit of an angry young man. Uh, told me in what appeared to me sincerity that the next time he was in court, if that judge gave him a bad ruling, he was going to run up there, go over the bench and physically assault that judge. I didn't know if he was going to do it. It's, it was certainly possible. He said it seriously. So here's my confession time. Okay. I looked up the, the law on professional responsibility, confidentiality. I saw what it says. It makes it discretionary with me. I thought, how am I going to feel if I'm sitting there at the table and the judge makes a bad call and my client jumps up and assaults him? And I knew that he might have done that. And I don't tell anybody. So all I did was I went to the judge. I caught him in his chambers before the, um, the calendar started. I said, look, I don't think this is going to happen, but I feel like I should let you know this. This is what he said. So if you want to have a little heightened security, you know, just let everybody know that be alert <laughs> during this particular hearing because something could happen then you might want to do that. And the judge said, oh, I appreciate it. And nothing happened. Yeah. Hi there, hopping in again. Hey there. <laughs> um, so the church actually just released another press release during like while the show has been going on. Some people have been messaging me and pointing it out. I do. I don't know if you want to save it and go through it at the end or if you did want to. Why don't we do it? it? Can we do it after we've gone through the first one? Because yeah, I'm hoping they said something. Them. Yeah. Um, the first one well, was an absolute disaster. Them. Yeah, it was a bunch of nothing. Anyway, so I just I'm getting messages about it. So I wanted to make sure you guys knew and then and now the audience knows we, we know it. I have it uh, ready to add. So uh, is, so we'll go through what we've got and then we'll pull it up at the end. Thanks this is everyone. like live news. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Maven. So there's a few other things. By the way, do you have any other questions? There were a few other things that I wanted to bring up. And I think I, I, one of the things I was getting to was one of the the um, the foci is what the word I use of the problem, because there's a number of them. And one of them is this, is that, okay, this is what attorneys do. Attorneys represent clients. That's how they're built. And it seems very foreign to people who are not attorneys. And it's a very, it can be a very bloodless profession because you're not talking so much about people and bad things happening to people. You're talking about the law. You're talking about what's required. You're talking about what's not required. And you're talking about your client and your client's interests. By the way, the attorneys have to take continuing legal education, you know, every year and be recertified so they can continue to practice law as part of the requirements. And there are certain uh, amount of those legal education requirements that are ethics, right? So always ethics, always ethics, always ethics for lawyers, for other different people in different kinds of uh, professions as well. But the one single thing I remember learning in 32 years of discussions and being taught about ethics that made the most impact and was the most important to me is what 30 years ago, some guy in front of the group says, here's the main thing. If you ever have a question as to what 
you should do and what your ethical responsibility is in a given case and in a given circumstance. That question can usually be resolved by asking one question. And that one question is, who is my client? Mm. And once you ask that question, I mean, the answer should be obvious who your client is, but once you ask, ask the question, the answer is, oh, well, this is my client. So obviously these are the interests that I have to be protecting and advocating for. Yeah. Um, you and I are having this conversation. I'm also reading a little bit of this thing just so I can kind of get a heads up. And what becomes uh -oh. clear to me, even if we just stick to the AP article and the other stuff that's behind yeah. us that we're talking about tonight, it seems so obvious to me that the church wants to constantly talk about how it followed the rules. And what it doesn't want to say is we had both options. The option we chose to take, um, we could have taken the other one. And if we had taken the other one, nobody would have been liable in a lawsuit. Right. But we still chose to uh, impose that our local leader not report the abuse. Right. Yeah. So, and here's where you get to the lawyers. Lawyers are a creature. They are a tool. Um they are not the people who are in charge. If you're my client in the case, Bill, I'll be here to give you advice, counsel, direction, legal, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the decision is going to be yours on which direction we take, which strategy we go with. Okay? You're the guy who's in charge. I'm just a tool. And what is apparent to me that has happened with this hotline is even if, and I'm, I'm willing to grant that it was conceived of and put in place in order to help local leaders not violate the law of their respective states. That makes sense to me. The problem I think is that the temptation for the lawyers was overwhelming because the lawyers see the church as their client and that's the church as an institution. The interests of the church are benefited by the fact that they have set up a hotline for one reason, but what it ends up doing is giving them all this advanced notice and insider information on allegations of sexual abuse for which the church could be civilly liable, that's money, and they get a heads up on it. Well, what are you gonna do if you're a lawyer for a church and you are supposed to protect the interests of the church? Well, what apparently church legal has been doing as being good lawyers, but not so good Christians. Right. Jesus had a few things to say about lawyers. They're not like, yeah, this is Jesus. And this is Jesus and lawyers right there. Jesus is the one over here. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, but th this is, this is when lawyers run rampant because what they're doing is apparently using this insider information to shut down as much as they possibly can is coming to the information of the public, which means coming to the information of the police and then swooping in as quickly as they can with as slim a check as they can get away with and an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement to try and get this taken care of, settled in the corner and nobody's ever the wiser. And I think the church does this for two reasons. One is money and one is reputation. Yeah. Now, 
Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I have, been th- I have been thinking about this quite a bit. It's actually yeah. been kind of consuming me from all these different angles. But the problem, I think, is not the lawyers. The problem is the people who are supposed to be in charge of the lawyers. And that means the church leaders. Prophets, seers, and revelators. Yes, some of whom are lawyers. Yeah. So it gets, it gets complicated fast. Yeah, there were multiple hats. But what we have here in the LDS church now is a situation where the leaders have given complete authority and control of the church over to the lawyers. And the lawyers have run with it. This now appears to be a church of the lawyers, by the lawyers, and for the lawyers. It is not for the widow in Parowan. It is not for this uh, guy's daughter, daughters plural, who got sexually abused because somebody at church legal told the bishop who was required to call for advice that they could not report it. They couldn't do anything about it. And if they did, they would stand alone and be sued in their individual capacity. This is the problem is that the leaders of the church are not taking responsibility for what's going on. And one of the solutions, instead of just, you know, sitting here complaining about it, I'll tell you what I think one of the solutions is first off in a state where you can't report, obviously you're going to say you can't report in a state where you have to report, then you have to report. But in this body of states where it is discretionary, what President Nelson needs to do, and maybe it'll be in the press release. God knows, I think it would be a no, good idea. It's not there. It's not. Okay. There. What President Nelson needs to do is say, as the head of this church, of this corporation soul, I'm it. Okay. You are my lawyers. I am telling you right now that in every state where there's any discretion whatsoever for a bishop or local leader to report to police, you tell them you report it to police. Yeah. Um, we've got about 18 minutes left before I've got to close this down. So I want to, oh, I'm so I wanna, sorry. By the way, I would also okay. say, I would also say that, uh, once you do that to your lawyer, if your lawyer doesn't do what you tell him to do, then the lawyer is unethical for not following the wishes of the client. Right now they would have to. So basically you and I both understand the church is the one who, you know, church and its leaders are the ones who say, look reduce our liability, help us make more money, help us save more of our money without spending it on lawsuits. That, right. And I do want to get decided. this point in because I know we've got this breaking news and I'm sorry about your time constraint, Bill. I, yeah. I'll try and hurry. I apologize. One of the things here is that uh, what's becoming very clear from the way the church has presented itself is that there are two aspects. There's the, the, um, the financial aspect of the church and the church's reputation. And then there's the individual members of the church. And what the church is showing me at least is that what they are really concerned about is not so much the widow as the church is concerned about the widow's might. Yeah. Yeah. With a few minutes left, I want to, I want to hit on two things. One is that there's this idea that it, uh, the statute in Arizona says it has to be within church doctrine that there's some uh, priest confessor privilege happening, right? Like that has to be part of the theology. At the same time that this helpline comes out in 1995, the church also comes out with these child abuse pamphlets and um, little manuals that they would hand out to local leaders to help them uh, handle abuse. Really, it all sounds nice and fluffy. It sounds like we protect victims. But at the end of the day, everything is funneled through the helpline, which is funneled to lawyers, which is 
uh, always going to make the decision within the law to reduce liability. Um, the One of the uh, little pamphlets is called, um, let me see it here, Responding to Abuse, Help for Ecclesiastical Leaders. Uh, this is, uh, it says here, the status of this booklet is unclear. It's no longer in print. But the later publication, Re Responding to Abuse, Help for Ecclesiastical Leaders, while covering much of the same ground, does not repeal it. Obviously, in case of conflict, the later instruction would govern, but it is uncertain whether non-conflicting instructions have been superseded. That's all That's all side stuff. But what it says in there is it says calls made to the helpline are confidential, and it also says uh, church officers have a duty to keep any information received in a member's confession strictly confidential. In other words, just like with the family proclamation, they had to sort of establish doctrine around confidentiality um, in these pamphlets so that they can always re re refer back to them and go, yes, this is part of our theology. Here's the evidence. See. And so they've established, because I've always wondered, like I was taught to keep confidences, but not really strictly in the idea of somebody's coming to see you, Bishop, they're going to make a confession that stays completely private. You have, you're obligated to keep confidences, but they do have material within the church system that does teach that. So it does establish that point so that they would then be following the statute in Arizona. Um, I wanted to at least give a few minutes to a conversation for you and me, but I think I'll skip that. Maybe we can pick this up next week and, and play on a few parts of this. I do want to note, um, it was uh, Gerardo, and I forget the other gentleman's name, but they put out a like an editorial piece in the Salt Lake Tribune. Is that like Gerardo? Gerardo, I'm sorry, I, I, I pronounced it. That's the okay. official response of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is their editorial, uh, their their thing they sent into the paper that got published uh, in the Salt Lake Tribune. The official response of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints offered no explanation for the article's core allegations, namely the church's decision through its law firm to instruct bishops to not report the abuse to authorities. To be clear, the church is not scrambling to find an explanation for that decision. The church's legal team has a fully formed explanation. However, its official PR response avoids drawing attention to it because many people, including many Latter-day Saints, would probably find the explanation appalling. The explanation the church relied on in court can be summarized as follows. If a bishop finds out about child abuse through the perpetrator's confession, and if the law leaves it up to the bishop to decide between reporting the abuse or protecting the confidentiality of the abuser's confession, the church prioritizes the confidentiality of the abuser's confession. Its explanation arguably shows that the church has a tendency to not report child abuse in certain cases unless it absolutely has to. The church's official response winked at this explanation by referring to laws that al allegedly restrict, quote, what can be shared from private ecclesiastical conversations, unquote. But there were no restrictions in the Bisbee case. According to the AP, Arizona law allows clergy to report child abuse, even if they can only report it by divulging what they learned in a confession. Um, Freestar and references, I don't know what Freestar, maybe that's something else. And references to clergy penitent privilege are usually a distraction. Um, I just want to note, I'll put up, you've, what's, what's, uh, what's this thing here up on the screen? I think it's uh, an advert. Oh, uh, it's happening this Friday um, gotcha. to require clergy to report abuse um, to remove this, uh, you know, exception in Utah. 
um, for for clergy to be mandated reporters. So um, if there are people uh, in Utah that can go, it's this Friday at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. I'll be there. I'll be streaming it. Um, and the article that you are referencing, it is it is Gerardo um, from Morning Stories. Yeah. And the uh, uh, the uh, I think attorney um, that he was also on in one of the episodes to to kind of talk about the legal issues at play here. And he is uh, licensed to practice in Utah. So the two of them wrote that article in. And I almost wonder. I think I, did you say this bill that the what I think what the church just dropped today is actually responding to that uh, is responding to. Um, yeah, to that article specifically. That's and I was going to put wow. that up on the screen. And I was just going to say, I, again, I, I glanced over it. I can tell you what's not in there. Here's what's not in there. They are going to tell you about all the ways in which they tried to help uh, the victims. Uh, for instance, here, church leaders and members are instructed in the church general handbook that their responsibilities related to abuse are as follows. Assure that child sexual abuse is stopped. Okay, that's but when BS. you tell someone not to report it, that right. doesn't count, does it? Right. Help victims receive care, including from professional counselors. And let me at least say at the at the call hotline level, the lawyers have already admitted they don't even know how to get a hold of counselors. They right. and the church has told the bishop, do not report it. And so the bishop is already feeling pressure to not help these victims because the church seems to be on the side of the abusers. Um, right. Number look th at number three carefully. Did you already get to two? No, no, let's do it. Comply with whatever reporting is required by law. Comply if, with whatever is required. Yeah. So law. if it's required for us to report, we will. Otherwise, we will not. We'll now, here it says, advice. what did they get wrong? It talks about all the things. It says here, in compliance with that council from that time forward, the bishop repeatedly tried to intervene and encourage reporting, including by counseling everyone to report it except for him. You'll notice what's not in there is that he ever felt like he had the chance to report it or that the church ever felt like he had an opportunity to report it. He didn't. So he did what the church told him to do, which is encourage everyone but himself to report it. Nobody does. The, the woman is in a situation where she is being abused as well. Um, she's in a the very... Said, the bishop said she was like she's emotionally dead. Yeah. They both pointed that she was incapable. She was yeah. incapable of doing anything here. The kid's too young, and the and the and the husband's already essentially acknowledged he's not going to do it. And by the way, yeah, here's a newsflash for you, Bill. This is not an unusual scenario. No, this isn't a one and done. This is this is the standard protocol of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. And I'm sorry, I mean uh, it's not an unusual scenario to have a wife who is not reporting to police. Otherwise she would have already. Yeah. Right. And to have a perpetrator who's not going to tell the police, he's yeah. not going to put his neck in that news. No, no, hundred percent. This is an abusive home. This is, there are power, power dynamics playing out here that includes Stockholm syndrome and all those other kinds of things that go into this. Uh, when folks are abused and, and kept down, they, they don't feel they have a voice to raise to these things. And, and so as you read this article, you'll see the church is really trying to word this in a way that um, takes some of the pressure off. But when you read between the lines, it becomes clear that their modus operandi is any state where they have the option or responsibility not to report it, they're not reporting it. What does number three say there? To directly report the abuse to authorities, regardless of legal exemptions from reporting requirements. 
when it is known that a child is in imminent danger. In other words, the abuse isn't behind us. Bullshit. The abuse is in front of us. I'm sorry. What was that? Did you sneeze, Maven? I. That's not what they try to do, and that was made abundantly clear in all of the like analyses that have been done and and just in all of the stories that we're getting john's been flooded by stories um and he's going to be sharing some on friday morning i think of just yeah when this it's, entity it's, yeah regardless it's, of legal exemptions no if there's an exemption from reporting they absolutely do not want you reporting so i just hate that they can just notice the words this. they use right notice the words they use when it is known that a child is in imminent danger then we require so if the bishop were told look i'm gonna abuse this kid tomorrow then the church would probably encourage him to report it i don't even think that's true i think i agree with maven here because in the facts of the arizona case the report is, is that the attorney who's representing the church and the two bishops, because the two bishops did what the church told them to do. So the church is paying for their lawyer, right? But the attorney who's representing the two bishops and the church in that case is saying that the bishops had no idea that this was continuing or ongoing or that the jeopardy was something that could uh, take place in the future, not just the past. And in response to that, the other side was put forward in the AP article. What are you talking about? Bishop Herod talked frequently with the mother about stopping things. Yeah. Why are you talking with the mom about stopping things if you don't think it's ongoing? Yeah. And notice this line. The helpline routinely reports cases of child abuse to authorities. I'm going to guess, though, what it's missing is the caveat, which is only in states where it is mandatory to report yes. it. Hello, Oregon. Yes. Yeah. I think that, too. I, when they are saying that, they are specifically talking about when they have to. I that's my belief I as well yeah, yeah. very strongly I think that is all that they're talking about and they're leaving that part off to make totally. it sound like they're voluntarily doing it when they don't have to right and then the last line outside experts who are aware of the helpline have regularly praised it who are these outside experts this seems to be a uh, what is it a plead to authority fallacy it's not even saying who the authority is that's just, no when you yeah. have to put that in one of in your second press release because the first press release was so crappy that it blew up worse than if you hadn't made a press release in the first place at all. When you have to put that in a press release, you know you don't have enough good stuff to say. Again, carefully worded, even when a report is not required or is even prohibited by law because the confession is owned by the confessor, the help, the confession is owned by the confessor. The helpline encourages leaders to pursue ways to ensure these three goals are met. In other words, don't report it but by all means, encourage everyone else involved to report it. And I think too, what, in this what, article itself, it contradicts, Bill, like what you were saying that, or that they're trying to say that, is that the AP article made it seem like the bishop knew that this was ongoing um, and they're saying he didn't, but it's it's right there in their own, you know, when they list all of the things that the bishop did, counseling the man to repent and seek professional help, asking him to report, encouraging his wife to report, all of these things these are all evidence against the point that they're they were trying to make that he didn't know about it. It's in their own article, the refutation yeah. of their own point. That's a really they're, good they're, point, Maven. By the way, Bill, before you go to that paragraph, can you go to the one before that you already read? Look at what they did there. That's where they tipped their hands to me. Because what they should be saying here is even when a report is prohibited by law, the helpline encourages leaders to pursue ways to ensure these three goals are met. That would be understandable but that's not what they say. 
They say even when a report is not required, discretion, even when a report is not required or is even prohibited by law. Let's take out the or is even prohibited by law. Even when a report is not required, the helpline encourages leaders to pursue ways to ensure these three goals are met. So they are only going to require bishops to report when it is required. Required. Yeah. Thank you for filling that in. Yeah, yeah. And then this last one, those who serve on the helpline are parents and grandparents. And then it goes on about how much these people would care. They're abuse victims themselves. But remember, this is what he's what they're pointing at right here are well, the and lawyers. These are the parents yeah, and grandparents also, who also happen to be lawyers. <laughs> these are also the folks who answer the phone at the beginning and then yeah. pass it on to the lawyers. So I'm sure there are very good people on the front end who take the phone call, who think that they're helping. And then they pass the call to the lawyers and they get to go home at night and think that everything got handled right and people got helped. But in reality, they just passed the phone call on to Curtin and McConkie and Curtin and McConkie said, don't report it. So I'm sure the, the people who- There would be any incentive on their part to cover up child abuse is absurd. Yeah. I don't know why that is. I don't know why that's the case. So that's Again, it sounds like- to me. Yeah, it sounds like they're talking about the people who answer the phone and- those folks are a very different subset of people versus who they pass the phone call on to. They have, they're really not uh, covering themselves in glory with the second press release. I'm afraid. No, no. If anybody knows, if anybody understands what's going on, you can read between the lines, every single sentence, just about um, again, they're going to say a bunch of stuff. This is read sickening. That, it's read, heartbreaking. Can I read this line because this is total BS. Yeah. We, in conclusion of today's press release from 25 minutes ago about, we strive to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, who spoke powerfully and repeatedly about the precious value of children and condemned those who would mistreat them. Sorry, no, they are not striving to follow those teachings of Jesus. Yeah. This is what happens when you try to worship God and mammon. And the LDS church is like the fulfillment of every biblical warning of what happens when you mix money and God. Yeah, that's a strange line, isn't it? Because the confession is owned by the confessor. It seems to indicate like, I'm really sorry we didn't say to report it, but it's not our confession, it's his. Like he has to go report it. It's not our job. Like we're doing everything we can, but it's his, it's his confession. He owns it. Right. And once again, this is getting into the point of the area of mixing the privilege as to what is evidence admitted at trial versus the reporting requirements. Yeah. Anyway, there's their press release, but it it isn't going to tell you they're going to they're going to avoid it at all costs telling you, look, we told him not to report it. He could have mentioned the names. What happened to the Adams children in Arizona at the hands of their parents is sickening, heartbreaking and inexcusable. They're human beings, too. Right. Comma. By the way, and I'll add parenthetically, and would not have happened or would have stopped happening in 2010 if the church had correctly advised the bishop as to what the legal reporting requirements were in Arizona. And if they had told the bishop to report that to police immediately. Yeah. Um, again, it, it, it becomes crystal clear that they want to avoid having a frank conversation about, look, we told them not to report it. They could have, and there looks like there would have been no liability in doing so. So let us explain why we still chose not to report it. And that's the question, million dollar question that they're not going to address no matter how many press releases they send out. 
Yeah, we will not stand by while others mischaracterize or completely misrepresent the church's long-term efforts and commitment. Wow. Nor will we tolerate the Associated Press or any other media to make such gross errors on the details of such a tragic and horrific incident. Jiminy Christmas, could you guys just take some freaking responsibility for your own actions? Could you say we effed up big time here because whoever gave this report to the bishop was wrong, was negligent, is right. fired, <laughs> whatever you want to say. Take responsibility for it, for crying out loud. Everybody knows, I'll say everybody, everybody knows you cocked this one up big time, LDS Church. It's not going to make it better for you to, to deny it and continue to talk about how you're the gold standard in protecting children when we all know that if you have a gold standard in anything, that's not what it's in. It reducing liability. Yes. Your press release should have said President Nelson today changes the structure and is going to make sure. First off, this was a horrible mistake. This should never have happened. We're going to take steps to never make make sure it never happens again. And right now we are going to follow the law, but we are going to follow the law. What's been going on is that the, the church has been allowing the laws to be finagled in a way that helps the church financially. Yeah. And is not helping victims who are members of the church. Yeah. What they need to do is finagle the laws the other way and say, anytime there's any ability to report this to police by the bishop who receives a confession, you do it yesterday, not yeah. tomorrow. Yesterday, you get on the phone, you make that report, you follow it up, you follow it through. And you let them, the people know that you're reporting it, but you can't give them the, the power to say, report it or don't report it, no matter who yeah. it is. And we'll know if this change happens, regardless of whether they announce it, because we'll see cases come in the future just like this one or not. And so the church has a choice. It can start to play this game where more and more people are willing to have these kinds of conversations out loud in the newspaper about billion dollar systems, you know, multi hundred billion dollar systems. Um, oh, yeah. And good Lord, now they're going to quote from President Gordon B. Hinckley in this statement. Yeah. Do they not understand that we don't care what they have Living to say Living prophets anymore? dump Trump dead prophets. Yeah, and, and I don't care what Gordon B. Hinckley says. I don't care what anybody says about this. Yeah. I care what they do because the time for talking is past and the time yeah. for action is here. Yeah. Um, the church could easily change it. It probably does mean they'll pay out a little more. They might end up in a lawsuit or two that they weren't wanting. But as you pointed out in Arizona and probably in lots of other states, people who report abuse are likely protected uh, and don't have liability, at least in some, if not most of these states. The church is going to continue to suggest that the, that uh, a, a reporting be avoided by church leaders. And we're going to know that because another year or two or three, another big story like this will break and we'll find out if anything's changed. It won't have. No. Because they're busy justifying the absolute crappy job they're doing protecting children in the church. They're doing a crappy job of it. It's all over the media. Everybody knows it. And they continue to try and justify what they're doing as being the gold standard. Nobody's buying this anymore. And unlike you, who you have a uh, responsibility to your client to reduce their liability and to not compromise them any more than they've already done to themselves, uh, the church claims that it's on the side of victims. So it gets to literally put its money where its mouth is, and it can start siding with victims. Or 
it can continue to do, as you said, business as usual, and all of us will know. Absolutely. And I'm afraid that we'll be disappointed if we're hoping for any positive changes. But but that's all they have to do is just start reporting, right? Reporting wherever you can get away with it. And some people are suggesting even if you can't get away with it. Well, I'm not sure I would personally be able to go that far if I'm an attorney representing a client because as an officer of the court, I actually can't advise my clients to break the law. But I can sure tell them, do it this way, interpret it this way. And I will guarantee you, first off, the, the fact of the matter is if the church had just done the right thing in Arizona and actually advised that bishop what the Arizona law said, and the bishop had reported it to police, and then if a lawsuit had happened, now the bishop and the church who told him to take that action are both immune from civil liability under the terms of the statute in Arizona itself. That is a good place to be. The problem is the attorneys are in charge because the leaders have allowed them to be. And the attorneys are out there trying to reduce the civil liability of the church by tying these up in a bow and keeping the good name of the church from being blackened or exploded, I should probably use, by these things going public. But I think that what they would find out, if I were the church's attorney, I would tell them, you report every time you possibly can and damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. And I guarantee you that even if you get sued, first off, the money's not yours in the first place, guys. I hate to break it to you. And you got plenty of it to go around. But even if you get sued, and even if you got sued and had to pay out more money than you would have otherwise, I mean, to do the right thing, that is money that is going to be well spent and get you more PR, more positive PR from people than any other money you're going to spend on the I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints campaign. Yeah. Um, the number up on the screen, we can take a few phone calls here. 662 Mormons. Hey, or Bill, 662, do you remember yeah. those clips of Elder Oaks? Um, yeah. I don't know. I've got to go. So I was, I've got to go. So if Maven uh, can maybe help you close out the show, yeah, I'm happy to do that. If you, when you, if you need to run out, Bill, I think we can stay on and I can still play those clips for RFM. But we Let's can do that. Let me, yeah, yeah, Let me step yeah. away then, and you'll have to manage either a call-in thing or, or just skip it for the night, but no biggie. Bill um, Real has to run back to his home on 1313 Mockingbird Lane. I wish. there. That's what is the, that's related wah, to a movie, wah, too. Wah, 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 wah. I don't know what that's about. Okay, Herman. Okay, there we go, okay. the monsters. All right. Um, <laughs> we'll get them <laughs> Um, Just to, before I, I step away from I, everything, so what's that? I say, if you want me to do the call-in studio, or are you going to... Uh, no, I won't, Bill. I'll just have to step away. So um, let me just kind of give a closing idea, which is um, the churches allow... Again, it says it sides with children, and it's allowing children to have additional trauma. Again, when you find out, when you're a, when you're a, a, a seven-year-old kid or a 13-year-old kid, or and you find out that not only was your dad or stepdad or uncle molesting you, but that they told your bishop who you were told to trust and to believe had your better good at heart. And you find out that your bishop didn't do anything about it. Not only that, he calls the leaders above him, prophets, seers, and revelators in the organizations they put in place to help that bishop do a good job. And now you call those folks 
and they don't stand up for you either. And I can only imagine how much, like it's one thing to be abused. It's another thing to see injustice after injustice that follows that abuse and is connected to it because it all mounts up as additional trauma that somebody has to figure out how to process and deal with uh, and get through. And the reality is if I'm a kid and I find out that the church I placed all my faith in, that I, I baptized at eight, remember I lost my free agency and gained my moral agency. When I, I joined a church that I thought was true and to find out that they protected my abuser for a few bucks rather than report it. And then you can understand probably which side of the line Jesus would fall on. Absolutely. And there's other things that are going on in this AP story. Now, the children are the most important thing, granted. But there are other consequences. The parents, the adoptive parents. You see, are you leaving this now, Bill? Okay. Love you. Good seeing you. All right. Now it's just us. <laughs> but the adoptive parents, I think it was of the younger of the two girls. What the heck was that? The adoptive parents of the younger of the two abused girls in the AP story were members of the church until they started finding out what the church did to cover this up. And now they've had their names removed. They said, forget it. We're not signing on to this organization anymore. So there are additional collateral damages which hurt the church financially. But are they just not taking these into account? I guess I think... I just feel like uh, I think they think they're choosing the lesser of two evils and they really, really aren't. They are really mistaken. Um, I do have the studio up. I'm not sure if I can connect people or not. Um, do you want to see if we can, can try we see about these clips? Because uh, we went through uh, I had a listener send me actually more than one listener send me this clip from a 1999 church video, which was made by Elder Oaks. Well, he's featured speaking in it. But it's a training video to bishops about reporting child abuse. And we had a couple of clips from it. Uh, it's about a 22-minute video, and we picked a few clips. Let's see if we can work those out. I will say, once again, this whole idea, it, it, it's monstrous. It has no human compassion or empathy whatsoever anywhere within 100 yards of it. And I'm telling you now, the reason is because the leaders of the church have given absolute control over to the lawyers the leaders Which, by the way do not escape responsibility by giving control to the lawyers they've abdicated it the responsibility is theirs to direct the lawyers on what to do and not to give them the keys of the city which clip did you want first? The one about discernment or the call the helpline? Can I do the one to call the helpline? Because I love this one. It just looks like something I would see on some cable news commercial at about two o'clock in the morning. Okay, here it is. Call the helpline when you believe there has been abuse and you need to talk with someone who can answer basic questions about this grievous problem. Call the number on the screen. This number can also be found in the brochure, Responding to Abuse. Qualified professionals are available for consultation to help you provide appropriate guidance for the persons and families you're counseling. There we go. So now we see how it actually works. But we have the phone number. It was up on the screen. I don't know if it's still the phone number. Somebody can try it if they want. But that's this. Now, the other part 
of this. Um, by the way, we got this video off of a website called, what's it called? Uh, Hard to find Mormon videos, I think. That's correct. It's a YouTube channel, Hard to find Mormon videos. Right. Yeah. So you can find all this, this entire 22-minute yeah. uh, thing. And they do say things on both sides of the issue. But here, this clip, which is uh, oh, about a minute, maybe two minutes, where they, well, just, just listen to what Elder Oak says, how a bishop should respond and treat reports of abuse and see what kind of a take you get on it, whether he's siding with reporting it because it's true or not reporting it because it might not be true. And and the gift of discernment that bishops have to be judges in Israel and they have the right to pray to God and find out the truth of what really happened. There are many ways of recognizing the possibility of abuse. The victim may tell you, a witness may come forward, or the perpetrator may confess. Pay careful attention when someone tells you or tries to tell you about abuse, especially children. They may have been victimized by people they trust the most, a family member, a teacher, a friend, or a neighbor. Many victims, especially children, do not confide in their leaders because of fear that they will not be believed or may be blamed. On the other hand, some accusations involve false statements about abuse especially in the midst of marital contention, divorce proceedings, or child custody disputes. Bishop, be prayerful when responding to accounts of abuse. Determining the truth is often very difficult and requires your special gift of discernment. You may not be able to get all the facts in an interview. Be certain that abuse is actually occurring. Seek inspiration and discernment to prevent innocent people from being hurt. Okay. Did you hear, Maven, where the emphasis seemed to be placed in that segment of the video? On how to know? First off, yeah, you're probably not going to know just from talking to people what really happened because how could you? You're right. going to have disputed facts, usually, not always. But you, you pray. You pray to find out for sure what happened. And only when you're certain... Elder Oak says, only when you're certain as to what happened, that abuse happened, should you take action. But he doesn't say what that action right. is. Right. And I I just hate that it's only when you're certain. And it's um, this was in the TikTok, and I don't have it ready, but um, um, I'll have to maybe get it in the show notes or someone. But someone brought this up. Um, I think the, the username is, is like Jawataz or something. I'm so sorry mm. that I'm like not giving proper credit for it. But uh, I think he puts it really well that it shouldn't be up to the bishop to be determining at all what has or hasn't happened. That's not their job. That is not their job. There are professionals whose job it is, like law enforcement, like social workers, to determine if abuse has happened and what has happened and the right ways to go about finding that out. A bishop is not trained in that at all. But when you are told, and especially as it's implied by an apostle like this, that you have something better than what all of those people have, all of their training, all of their tools, none of that compares to your very special priesthood discernment, um, then it just, it just wipes it all out of the water. And, it's, and that's why we have this problem that we have. And yeah. I, 
Side note, I think we can try to connect calls. Um, whenever I've been on before, there's been the double feed, but I we might still try it after if uh, RFM wants to. But anyway. Oh, I definitely want to try it. But yeah, the bishop is super cop. He has got super cop. And it, it struck me now, and I've watched this a couple times, this video just today since it was brought to my attention. Elder Oaks is a freaking lawyer, okay? If a report is made to police, if police, whose job it is to investigate, end up investigating, refer the charge to the prosecutor, prosecutor files charges, it goes to trial. Now you've got a jury, right? A jury, in order to find a person guilty of child sex abuse or any other crime, does not have to be certain that it occurred. All, nobody's ever going to be certain. That means no doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond any doubt, which is what certainty means. So what Elder Oaks has actually said in this video is that before a bishop, or what he's implied, is before a bishop does anything or reports anything, he has to be certain that the abuse occurred. What he's just done is imposed a higher burden of proof on the bishop to make a report to police at the outset than for a jury to return a verdict of guilty at the end of the case. Right. Mind-blowing, isn't it? It is. It is. Who's in charge of this chicken outfit? <laughs> yeah. It's just okay. bad. The whole thing is bad. But, yeah, and we'll have that in the show notes if anyone wants to put themselves through the full 22 minutes. Yeah, uh, it's, it's not all bad. I think these are the, the most salient parts for purposes of our discussion, but I always like to give people a reference to the entire thing so they can see everything for themselves and that hopefully we're not taking anything too badly out of it context um so you want to try calls yes um i let's go ahead and try and i'll see hopefully there's not going to be that feedback echo that's been on before so the first one i think we have trevor so um hopefully you guys can be patient with me and we'll see if we can get this to go okay trevor are you there can you hear me and rfm can you say something rfm i am saying something trevor can you hear me Yes, I hear both of you. Okay, and it doesn't seem like there's an echo or a repeat. Is that right? Okay, cool. No. All right, go ahead, Trevor. We're we're good. All right. Um, I just kind of want to, I guess, hijack the show and step on a step box, uh, soapbox here. But um, there was an article this morning that came out um, in my local area of Portland, Oregon, and I believe on the heels of all of this, um, there's people that are vandalizing ward buildings and saying uh, child predators and bishops are, are rapists and all this. Um, I understand the frustration that everyone is having with all this issue. Um, but I just want to give it on the record that this should not be happening. Vandalizing the churches um, doesn't help the cause. If we really want change and to help um, the victims of sexual abuse, we cannot stoop down to that level. Um, it doesn't make our message um, strong. What it does is it actually lets the members dig deeper and drag their heels and say, like, they're persecuting us because yeah. we're on the right side of things. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, um, just like the tagging of the L.A. Temple back in 2008. Oh, I, I didn't know about that. 
Yeah, in the Prop 8 thing. And so, of course, whenever that discussion comes up, the church immediately goes to the injuries and the property damage that the church suffered to play the victim card in order to distract focus from the issue of what the church was really doing in California back then. Is, is that what Cardin was referring to during the debate? I have no idea of anything that Cardin was referring to okay. in the debate. Oh, I think he did mention something about it. Yes, he did, didn't he, Maven? Yeah, where he said, like, he survived Prop 8 in California. I did not watch the debate, but I did see that clip go around. Yeah, That's right, he did. Persecution, yep. Good memory. Yep. But that's immediately where you go to is that that persecution card. So you're right. I'm surprised that there are any buildings left to vandalize in Portland, Oregon, but I'll take your word for it. There's a few, and I've, I've gone back to do some journaling, and it's um, helped me in my therapeutic process. Um, but, yeah, I just I saw that this morning, and I was very disheartened. And I'm like, that doesn't help us, guys. That really doesn't help. So I just hope that people will learn and, and not to do that um, and, and focus, the, uh, focus the energy in a different way, in a positive way that can really help the issue. And maybe a good positive way. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Trevor. I didn't mean to talk over you. I was just going to hand it over to Maven and say that a good positive way she might have an announcement about for Friday. And I know you've talked about it before. Yeah, I can put this back up too. And maybe this will just will be our ending card for the show is for, again, the rally for anyone that is in Utah and is able to come to the Capitol on Friday uh, at 6.30 p.m. Um, there's going to be a lot of speakers. And this is something that you can invite your um LDS family members too. Ideally, hopefully we can get a lot more of them to come as well. The organizers have gone out of their way to make sure uh, and and to promote that this is not anti-church. And so I know sometimes on this side of things, we're we're pretty open about the negative feelings that we have towards the leadership and whatnot. But the, the purpose of this rally really is to focus on this law and to not make an us versus them environment. Uh, you know, against the church, but to incorporate the members of the church and get them, uh, everybody on board. So I just I wanted to make that also very clear. They've worked very hard to try to make this really, really about the children, not about the church. So yes, yeah. and nothing could be any worse, I think, than at this um, rally for people to engage in acts of violence or property damage. To follow up on what Trevor had said. Right. Right, right, because then you distract from your message yeah. and you want to stay on point. It maybe feels good when you do it, but it doesn't actually help anything. So we're hoping to get as many people as possible to make a really good show of force here to actually help, to actually do something that will help future children uh, more than spray painting the side of a building or some broken windows. Yes, because this is a serious, serious issue, and it deserves to be treated seriously. And if you treat it seriously and in the way that you're describing, that the people who are organizing this are treating it, then it has a greater likelihood of bringing more people of goodwill over to your side. Yes. As a Mormon movement is asking if there's any way to support this for those not in Utah, it's going to be live streamed on Mormon Stories and I think several other platforms as well. But um, I think Utah is not the only state that has this. So if you're in a state where clergy still also have an exception um, or supposedly like New York, where they 
they're banned from uh, selling. This is something that you might want to see if you can get going in your state as well. Um, again, and not necessarily Mormon focused because we know there's a lot of churches. I think it's the the uh, Baptists are also kind of going through a come to Jesus moment the same way that Mormons are right now. And so it's a prevalent problem everywhere. So if you're not in Utah, I would recommend looking at your own uh, local and state governments and seeing what you can do. But you can join in on the live stream as well and support that way if you'd like. Very good. Thank you, Maven. Are there any colors? Oh, yes. Oh, I, yeah, I was going to say, I think, are, are we good um, with Trevor? I'll go ahead and drop this I, call and take the next one. Is that okay? I think so. Thank you, Trevor. I said, And yeah. I said colors. I meant callers. Yeah, you guys are great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay. And then I know Alana's trying to get in, so hopefully um, we can get her. But this next one, I don't have a name for this one, um, but call it, you are on air. Go ahead. I don't have a name, so I actually can't say who it is. It looks Hello? like... Hello? Yes. Hello? Yes. Hi. Calling from Idaho, I think. Yes. My name is Ruth. Okay. Hi, Ruth. And I have a statement and I have a question. Okay. Uh, the question is for RFM. And what I'd like to know is, do you have to take every client that comes to you? No. Can you refuse to re can you refuse to, to ethically not defend someone yes. that has uh, abused children? Yes. I, I think and, I and I was answering while you were asking, Bruce, so I apologize. So the answer is there is no I'm not a public defender. Okay. If I'm a public defender, yeah. then I'm under contract to take whatever cases are referred to me by the governmental agency that I have the contract with, okay? I don't have a right to refuse. Okay. But as a private attorney, I have an absolute right to represent somebody or not represent them. And I can make those decisions based on anything that I want. And there are actually, believe it or not, this is probably not going to come as a surprise to you, Ruth, but allegations of child sex abuse within criminal law defense are the least, um, well, let me just say, they're not re revolting just to non-lawyers, okay? They're also revolting to lawyers and they're revolting to me personally. Now I have represented people, a number of people who've been charged with things like this, but the fact is, is that they, the mind tells the lawyer, it's just facts and it's just evidence, just like any other case. Is there a confession? What evidence do they have? Blah, 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 right? And you can look at it that way. But the reality for most lawyers, including myself, I'll just be personal here for a second, is that even though theoretically it's just another case, there is a great deal of emotional exhaustion, investment mm -hmm. that goes into it because of the nature of the case, even for the lawyer who's defending, at least for me. And so there are many lawyers who make that decision up front. They're not going to take any cases like that. And there are cases that have come through my door where I said, mm, no, I'm not going to. Here's some names of other lawyers. You might want to give them a call. I'm not going to represent yeah. you in this matter. So does that answer your question, Ruth? No, did we lose her? Ruth, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Yes, I am, but your sound went away for a minute. Oh, can okay. you hear me? Yeah, we yes. hear you. But did that answer your question? Yes, it did. And there's there's such a statement. Uh, for one thing, I 
the first little thing I'd like to say is uh, I don't believe that women in position like the bishops would put up with this for one damn minute. And another thing I'd like to, to say is I was sexually assaulted, not uh, just sexually assaulted by, I was babysitting, I was 12 years old. I got pinned into a corner between the stove and the counter when my babysitter, when the children's daughter came home. And I'm just saying uh, that he, he had his lips on my neck and he pinned me. He had his body up against my body and I was 12 years old and all I did was just go limp and drop to the ground and ran out between his legs and out the door. But I just want you to, the statement I want to make, very clear, is I lived two doors down from that man. And uh, from then on, I lived in fear uh, from 12 years old until I got out of the town that, that he lived in. I feared that man. Uh, I, I was scared to play night games or go outside in the dark. And I just want people to realize, I hope they realize uh, when we're talking about all this, but at the end of this is is a girl, a young girl that had to go home every night to that house, a baby that had to live in that house. And I just want to say that uh, it's horrible. It's horrible what it, we're doing. Cavalierly, you know, I, I wish I could run to their aid. Why? Oh, why? In God's name, didn't the bishop run? to the aid of the children. You've got a mind, Bishop. You've got a mind. You do not have to uh, duck your head to the authority of the Mormon, and I say Mormon church. So I'm gutted on this one. I am just gutted. Thank you so much, Mormon church. Uh, my son dying on his mission isn't enough for you. You have to got people. And I just have to say that I'm so sorry to sound so emotional. But for the love of God, do something. In your church, you spineless, yellow bats, sons of bitches. And that's all I've got to say. And God bless this show. Your, I hope your superior power blesses all of you. I love you guys. I love your comments. I love what I've heard. I'm 75 years old now. I love you guys. I love your comments. You've taught me so much, and I'm so glad to be out of that festival of a Mormon church. Thank you so much for your help. And that's all I got to say. I love you guys. Thank you, Ruth. Bye. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you so much. Wow. I. Yeah. I don't know if there's any other callers on the line. You said something about Alana. There is. Alana's on. And I know Dave actually did a show one. earlier today, and I'm sorry that I missed it. But I think she's actually got very a lot of specific actionable items. I'm thinking that's what she's calling in to share. So let me go ahead and get her on here I, about things that we can actually do. So, um, okay. Thank you again, Ruth, for calling. Yes. Thank you, Ruth. That was really really amazing and i really i want to learn more about her story actually but alana i think i think we've got you on can you hear us 
I can, Raven. Hello. Hello. And we might have, I think, because of where you are, there'll probably be a bit more of a yeah, uh, yeah, an overlap in timing. I think so. That's just something for um, RFM and I and the audience to be aware of. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So obviously, uh, Jane and myself did a show earlier. Um, now I can't take credit for this quote. It wasn't myself who found it. It was the wonderful Sarah. Um, this is one that came from President Oaks um, in 2012, I believe. So we're using this as our basis for what we're about to, to do um, and trying to force the church into doing more to protect children and safeguard children within the church. Um, so the quote says, children are highly vulnerable. They have little or no power to protect or provide for themselves and little influence on so much that is vital to their well-being. Children need others to speak for them. I've seen that. Was that all of it or was there more? Um, no, that, that was the quote, but we just felt like, you know, I guess this is one of those ones where you use their own words against them yes. kind of thing. Um, you know, like, obviously anyone who listens to a podcast will know, you know, I'm open about it. I am a survivor of sexual abuse as well, not within the church, though. Um, but it's why I'm so passionate about this. Um, it's just, I just can't for the life of me understand why the church, in that um, recent statement that was put out, they highlight how they find it terrible that people would suggest that they're not doing enough which is just crazy. Yeah. Because they're not doing enough. They don't have safeguarding within the walls of the church. They don't have DBS checks or, you know, all the various things that should be in place to protect these children. Um, you know, this recent case, and I know there's many, many more out there. I think this is just the tip of the iceberg, personally. Um, I think there's going to be so much more to come in the future. And I just beg the church to, to make changes to stop this horrible act. I said this in the show earlier, that, you know, sexual abuse changes a child's life forever. It never goes away. It's with you all the time. You learn to live with it and deal with it better. Some people don't. But certainly for me, I'm managing it a lot better. But it's so, so harmful for life. And why they don't want to stop that from happening or do all they can to stop it from happening within their church is just beyond me. Yeah. Oh, one of the stories that they went over, and I, I actually made a video or I get a, a TikTok for this, and it, it was involving a woman talking about what happened to her daughter. And this this was ages and ages ago, but the estate president told them to not uh, take it to law enforcement and to try to keep harmony in the neighborhood. But when he finally did go to court, it um, there were hundreds, hundreds of incidences from this man yeah. over three decades. Yeah. Um, and I think it said with a, a dozen boys and girls. And I, it, it's obvious, I think, or it should be yeah. obvious from that, that that keeping it quiet, all these previous incidents, that's what led to um, this woman's daughter, or, you know, this man having the opportunity yeah. to also do it. And so by by doing the church doing what it's doing, it has harmed so many more children just all across the board. Yeah. I think, well, honestly, since it's and inception. I think one little, I, I, oh, sorry. I think I think like that 
statement, like when Jane sent me it, like reading it, I was just laughing through a lot of it because they're putting this out there on this one case mm-hmm. that they didn't get facts right, but yet there's so many more cases out there that are telling the same story. We're getting messages from people telling their story. Mormon stories is, you know, it, there's loads. So what's their argument for each of these cases then where they've got it wrong? This is just one case. Yeah. I just don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, crazy. Anyway, thank you very much. Yes, uh, thank you. Yourself and RFM, Phil, all the work you do. Um, half past three and I'm up to the school run shortly so I will say good night good night um, thank you Elena what you're doing as well I, everyone should check out what 21st Century Saints just did earlier today so yes there's there's more there and thank you so much for staying up late and and participating Bye. Alana yeah yes thank you bye-bye. bye-bye I think what's clear is that regardless of what the church says children are not their highest priority Yes, I think that is clear. Um, we do still have two more calls, but I don't know. Do you still want to go RFM or? Sure, I'm fine. We can okay. take two more calls if you want. Okay. All right. I suspended calls, but it looks like we got a third one coming in still, maybe right before I did that. But uh, okay, it looks like we've got Marco on next. Marco. <laughs> Hello. Correct response is Polo. Yeah, didn't say Polo. You missed it, Marco. <laughs> Oh, I missed it. Yeah. Hey, Marco, how you doing? Um, first, I'm good. RFM, how are you? I'm gonna be good after tonight's show. Um, you know, um, honestly, for myself, if I'm being honest, I'm not doing well after listening to Ruth and um, this. It really, it really affects me very personally. I have four very young children, and hearing Ruth's story just struck me to my core. Because I have, I I don't. I, this is. I guess I'll just share a little bit. I, I I'm divorced, and my ex is still a believing member. And um, <laughs> every since this has come out, I've had I've been ruminating on it, right? And I just don't know. I I I fear that what if it's already happened? You know, because um, it's been a year since I've not been able to over you know protect them, and I. I, I uh, Marco, Marco, just sit by idle. Marco, yeah, I, I want to try and understand what you're saying. Do you say it's been a year since you've been able to protect your children? So basically, I when I got divorced was a year ago. You know, well, separated, kicked out of the house. You know, whatever you want to call it. And you know, she, she, I, I don't have a lot of say, and like I try to, you know, be respectful of her. And, you know, I'm okay She's with the them going to church at this point. At this point, um, I, I had a conversation with a really good friend last night about it, but, you know, you know, she, she, she gave me some good insight that, you know, and I, and I, I it helped me to kind of make a, um, a concerted decision that I'm definitely going to demand that I be present physically in any worthiness interviews involving clergy and that I know uh, what, you know, clergy, so young men's leaders and whatnot will be present at what other youth activities that they may be participating in because there is no way I'm going to let that happen to my children. I, you will kill me and bury me before I let that happen. So, 
Well, I will tell you that a lot of this abuse has probably happened by people who are too willing to give up their supervisory, supervisory. What am I talking like a lawyer now? In other words, by people who are just willing to trust the church because they're church people and they're not going to do anything bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, you know, and you know, then I guess I'm going to make a snafu out of it if, if it comes to that. It comes to that, but I will not let my children be interviewed uh, without uh, without myself present. So. Um, I technically am still a member, so, you know, I guess that gives me a little bit of clout, I guess. But well, technically, you're also still a I, I heard you're saying, though. Which should give you more clout. Well, yes, exactly. It, does, it shouldn't matter that I'm a member or not, but in their eyes, you know, being a member gives me certain rights, I suppose. So Yeah, that's true. And the priesthood. Don't forget the priesthood. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. That is true. Well, I think that it's good yeah, that well, you're being you proactive. Oh, yeah, Marco, here, yeah. I'm complimenting you. Don't talk over my compliment. I'm sitting there saying, I think I, Marco, I think it's good that you're being proactive. And I think that if uh, yeah. more, more of us were proactive, then abuse might go down. And at least we're trying well, to take care of our own children. We'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> So good luck to you. Don't yeah. get yourself arrested. Yeah. Or so you've got me on speed dial. <laughs> are, you, are you licensed to work? In right on. <laughs> Pro hack Vici, baby. <laughs> That's another thing a lot of lawyers do. <laughs> okay. No, I, 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 I understand. I understand Latin. <laughs> okay, perfect. Then we're talking the same language. It's all Greek to me. That's right. It's all, all Greek right. to you, huh? <laughs> Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. And we've got Doug Vincent up next. So let's see. It, it just takes a second to get up here. Is this Ted Vincent? Doug Vincent. Oh, Doug. Ted. Okay. Yes. Hi, RFM. Hello. Hello. <laughs> hey, Doug. How are you doing? Can you hear me? Yep, we hear you. Go ahead. Yeah, I was. This whole thing has brought up in my mind uh, a documentary that I saw. It's been some years ago. I can't remember exactly how how far back, but this is about the uh, West Virginia case. And I don't know, RFM, if you're familiar with that case or not. But I am. I, Doug, involved- I'll tell you that eventually these cases start running together. There's so many of them. But the West Virginia case is the one referenced in the AP story that they did the FOIA request and got the 1,200 pages of records so they could find out more stuff about the church hotline. Yeah. Yeah, well, in that documentary, go look it up because it's really worth uh, watching. Uh, but one of the things that just really uh, stood out in my mind from that documentary was that they had some of the notes that were taken, I guess, by church legal or church authorities uh, talking about this. Uh, and this was a case involved a, a missionary who abused young girls before his mission, was sent on his mission, abused young girls on his mission. I think it was in France. And when they sent him, so they were going to send him home. And there's this dialogue that went back and forth about, well, if we send him, you know, back to where he started from, they're probably going to arrest him as soon as the plane lands. So they wound up 
I think delaying sending him home. And then they, when they did send him home, they sent him to West Virginia, which I guess his parents had moved. Instead of Utah, which yeah. is where he was from, right? Yeah. What's that? Instead of Utah, which is where he was from, where the original abuse happened, right? Yeah. Instead, of, yeah. Instead of Utah, and then uh, <clears throat> so he comes to West Virginia, and when he gets there, not a single thing is said to anybody about all this stuff. And he's allowed to, and his parents encouraged members of the war to let him babysit their children. And so he started molesting all those kids as well. It was just absolutely freaking unbelievable. But this is the kind of stuff that has been going on behind the scenes for, you know, way too much. And, and then we have the Boy Scout fiasco, which uh, I have no idea how many victims there are in that, but there's just got to be thousands and thousands of them. Uh, so the church is, you know, we, it's kind of hard to think about it, but this is almost as big a scandal as, it's in my mind, as the Catholic priest scandal. You know, you've got widespread abuse occurring in uh, by church members and being uh, hush hushed by uh, church leaders. So, yes, um, that's what some of the it's, attorneys uh, have said quite- that it's very similar. And I think what's what's kind of a, what makes that astonishing that the level is the same is how much smaller Mormonism is in membership to Catholicism, and yet. Uh, we're basically mm-hmm. we're making a name for ourselves in the worst way possible uh, to compare to one yeah. of the largest denominations of Christians in the world. It is pretty astonishing. Yeah, and um, well, the uh, Department of Justice is now going after the leaders of the Southern Baptist Church. I wonder if they're going to have something similar coming up for the leaders of the Mormon church. Well, well, they might, I think what's going along psychologically with the Catholic church, as well as the Mormon church, I know some of it has to do with money as far as the lawyers go, but I also think there's a big thing about the reputation of the church. Cause when you're a Mormon, you're in it to win it. And I certainly was for 40 years. And mm-hmm. the Mormon church is the only true and living church on the face of the earth. And I expect if you're a Catholic, you feel the same way about the Catholic church. The only way to salvation is through the Catholic Church. We want to get people into the Catholic Church, which means we have to make it look good. And let's go ahead and substitute Mormon Church in there, too, okay? Which means when bad things come out that make the Mormon Church or its members look bad, our first impulse is to cover it up. So people don't find out about it. So they don't not come into the church and get saved. So this impulse to cover up, to hide, to keep from being made public, this kind of negative information ends up being, I think, one of the main root causes for why this is all happening, both with the Catholics and with the Mormons, is because of this desire to not look bad, to look good. And out of a simple thing like that, I mean, I think we all understand that much. But to take it to the extreme where you're imposing policies and making decisions that victimize victims all over again and protect abusers because that's what happens as a natural result of quashing all this or squashing all this information and keeping it hidden. 
that's where people can't get their heads around it. That's what I think is going on. Exactly. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. protecting protecting abusers in uh, uh, One one last thing, real quick, RFM. What do you think about the Boy Scout decision to exclude the church's two hundred and fifty million dollars in damages and basically push that back out onto the church for whatever? Uh, you know, damages they're going to have to absorb. I am actually not really familiar with what's going on there. I did. Oh, sorry. I did read an article uh, yesterday or the day before that said that the, um, the, the church, after the judge had rejected the settlement proposed by the parties involving $250 million proposed by the church. And I think that the judge says, Hey, that would be fine if it was just covering Boy Scout abuse claims, but the church wanted to expand that to other church-related functions, and the judge says, no, that's not going to be enough money for that, and we don't even have the legal ability to foreclose claims of people who are not even part of this class against another element of the church, the church uh, young men's group, as opposed to the Boy Scouts, right? So my understanding is that the church, after having the proposal rejected by the judge and said, you need to go back to the drawing board has taken the 250 million off the table and said, we'll just take them as they come. Does that sound right? Okay. Instead of upping the money or taking out the conditions, they decided just to take the $250, $250 million, excuse me, off the table. Of course, for the church, $250 million would be like $250 to me. You got $25 to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> all right that's it thanks Thank so much you. y'all we have great one, episode we have thanks doug that uh did that uh, made it in right uh right at the end there and they have uh, held on so i'm gonna go ahead and, and pull them up and um and then after that we'll uh, wrap up so i think this person uh, jerry is that right hello hello yeah you are, you are on hi how are you Good. How are you? Well, uh, I just want to let you. Uh, good. How are you guys doing? Hanging in there. I'm okay. It's been a long evening. You finish us off, Jerry. You get the final word. Yeah. No pressure. Thousands are listening to your every word. Okay. Well, I I'll make this I'll make this short. Um, about in the early to mid '60s, uh, I was a Boy Scout in the LDS Church, and. The scoutmaster that we had, and I, he was our scoutmaster for years and years and years. He was inactive, but he was the scoutmaster single. And uh, one one uh, day I got called to the bishop. My dad said, uh, you know, the bishop wants to talk to you about the scoutmaster. So I went in, and I knew nothing about this. You know, I'm just this naive kid. And the bishop says, you know, has the scoutmaster touched you or done anything to you? And he hadn't, which I think if he had, my dad would have killed him. But th this had been going on for years with this guy, and uh, he preyed on boys that had, did, had no father in the home, basically. He was their father figure. He'd invite them over after school and do all this stuff, you know. But uh, the bishop at the time, he was, a, he was an attorney, and come to find out, you know, they found out that this scout master had cancer and bishop at the time they, was the a, bishop was an attorney and uh, yeah, the bishop was out. an attorney and he, he, um, 
decided that they would take no action against this guy because he was dying and they felt sorry for him. And those poor kids, there was no help for them back then. They were just basically thrown to the wolves. And this guy died, and they wouldn't even excommunicate him. They just said, oh, he's poor guy's got cancer, and, you know, he's dying, so we're not going to take any any legal action or anything. And so he left these these all these scouts for years that had been abused by this guy. And back then, the church had no, you know, no kind of counseling or anything for this kind of stuff. So it just it's just sickening. You know what the church has done. It, it is, and even back in the 1960s, oh. when your bishop, who was an attorney, I think you said, at least he came to uh-huh. you as individual members that this guy had been a Boy Scout master, Scout master, whatever it is, troop leader. Yeah, and asked you individually to follow up and see if something had happened to you. And back in the 60s, yeah. it seems that the bishop, in your case, took more action proactively than the church does in 2022. Yeah. Yeah. But even back then there was no, there was no counseling offered to those poor boys that went through that with this guy. Right. You know, they just swept it under the rug and, and uh, everybody moved on. I think that what we can tell from history is that if the church can sweep anything under the rug, the church will sweep anything under the rug. And by the way, I don't know why I should be so surprised by this, because this is the exact same tactic and strategy the church has used from its inception regarding its history, which is we'll take all the negative information and we'll do everything we can to keep the members and the world from knowing about it, including cutting it out of books and putting it in safes and locking it in the vault. That's the way the church operates. Anything negative that they can hide they will hide. And then when it comes out, then they'll justify their bad behavior like they have in these two press releases in the Arizona case. Right. Yeah. And just one other thing I want to mention. This this isn't uh, maybe doesn't uh, you know, apply to this, but I was listening to uh, Elder Bednar the other day and he was giving uh, a talk in, I think, Mexico or South America. And he was talking about uh, free agency. No, he was talking about moral agency. There's no such thing as free agency. Huh? I said, no, he was talking about moral agency. There's no such thing as free agency. Yeah, he said, if you you have been baptized and gone through the temple, you don't have any free agency. Yeah. And I thought to myself, isn't that Satan's plan? (laughs) You know? Haven't you noticed the resemblance between Lucifer and Elder, uh, Sister Bednar's husband? Well, I thought he looked like Gollum. No, no, it's right around the eyes. It's the Terminator <laughs> Junior look. From Lord, it's of almost the, lifelike. Yeah, Gollum from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. But the amazing thing is, is I think his wife is running the church because she's never away from his side, no matter where he goes. Oh yeah, I'm sure she's that's why. Be whispering. She's got to be whispering things in his ear that it just you know, church policy probably. She's the. Uh, Sister Assistant Bender? prophet, I guess. Or are we talking about no, Wendy? No, I'm talking about... No, we're talking about Wendy. Wendy. Oh, okay. Now all of a sudden uh, it's making a lot more yeah. sense. Before yes. it was just satire. Now I hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, Nelson, Rusty Nelson looks more like Gollum than, than even the guy in the movie. 
but Wendy is just at his side constantly, and uh, Andy Circus creepy. But anyway, I just huh? Was it Andy Circus or is it Circs? The actor oh, in the movie. I can't quite I hear you. I have no idea who the actor yeah. is. That I think it's S I R K E S. I think it was an animated. I think it was an animated character, but oh yeah, but based off of real life. Uh, when <laughs> I'm sorry, we don't have to get into this at the end of the movie, but yeah, Andy Circus, S E R K I S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I, I just wanted to share back. that with you and. Oh, yeah, just to, to go oh, back go to what RFM was saying, that it is unusual and a good thing that they actually did reach out to you to check on you after that, um, because I feel that was the whole issue behind Colby Reddish's case and his story. And he's also in our chat during a little bit late, but that's entirely what he and his wife were attempting to do was to at least get after this, this and it was the bishop who had been molesting, was to at least try to reach out so that ward members knew, especially parents of children in the youth program, because the bishop does so much with the youth. And and that was what just what led to all of these problems was just trying to tell other members, just trying to tell other parents to even check in on their children. So it, I think yeah, it, yeah. it's great that they did it for you. And I just wish that they would do it more. Well, well like I said, I wasn't abused. Neither right. were my brothers because they went through the same scouting program. But even at that, I know the boys in the ward that were abused, and they were never offered any kind of counseling yeah. because of that. I think they were just to find out they were just trying to find out how deep mm. this abuse went, or if it was actually credible. Or maybe it I was don't to kind think, of you know, cut the guy off was dying. further uh, potential lawsuits, maybe. So maybe it wasn't so much about. Is that what you're saying? It's not so much about supporting yeah. the children or helping the children. It was to find out if there were right. potential lawsuits, and if there were other children. If say you had said yes that something had happened, then they probably would have worked with you to keep it quiet. Is what you're saying? I think. Yeah, right? and I don't think I don't think there were any lawsuits. I don't think there were any lawsuits even filed. Like mm. back then, I think they just sure. let it go. And uh, I hope that those guys are coming forward now and suing the church, and if they're still alive, but suing the church. And the Boy Scouts over it. I don't know, but uh, all I know is the ones that were abused were sure screwed up after that. Uh, yeah. So anyway, That'll thanks for letting me call in. Thanks, Jerry, for calling in. Yes, thank you for calling in. And I do, when Jerry's talking about this, it comes to my mind about all these children and all the reports of the sexual uh, improprieties and abuse and how the church covers it up whenever they possibly can. It seems to me... That the church, that the children in the church, are considered to be expendable by the church. The members of the church are expendable by the church, and every time there's a report on that hotline about a child being abused, it's just another Abrahamic sacrifice, as far as the church is concerned. Yep, I agree. So I guess we're about done for tonight. We have been going at this for two hours and 38 um, minutes. We don't have Mark. Bill here to... <laughs> what? To, to like make sure we... <laughs> to write Cowherd on us. Yeah. Well, Maven, thank you so much for everything that you do. I know you've had a long day. Thank you for all your help with this, both when Bill was here and now that he's gone, especially. Um, I appreciate okay. you. I appreciate all the listeners. I do not appreciate how this church is conducting itself. And it seems like a lot more people are getting hit to the fact that they don't really care about their children. 
as much as they claim to care about their children. And the church has now issued a second press release and a bunch of tweets. Yeah, the church is feeling the heat. <laughs> the very fact that they did any press release at all, which was August 5th, I believe the day after the AP story, that hit the fan fast. And the fact that they put out, a, it was a nothing burger of a release, but still that they did a press release showed that they were feeling the heat. The fact that they have just now today on August 17th of 2022 issued a second press release shows that they know the first release blew up in their face and they had to do more. And in fact, they did more of what exactly I was saying when the first time I saw that press release, which was, if you're going to dispute a story, you might want to include a few facts that you're in disagreement with. Instead right. of saying, these guys are <laughs> these guys are hacks. They don't know what they're doing. They weren't fair to us. Come up with a few examples. And they tried to put a few examples in this. I don't know that it was persuasive, but at least they tried to actually counter with some facts in their story because the first news release had no facts and apparently did not do the trick. And we'll see if this one does the trick. And if it doesn't, if the church is just going to give up on it and not try and issue a third press release, kind of the same way President Nelson did not call for a third day of fasting and prayer to turn yeah. back the COVID pandemic after the first two. Flopped. That's my guess. Yeah. All right. So how do we close this and get out of here without Bill? I'm going to try it this way. And if not, it'll be an abrupt ending. But thank All you. Right. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night, Maven. Let's see. Maybe, maybe I've got it here. <laughs> Sorry, one second. All right. Thank you, Maven. Thank you, everybody.